Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Puts another one towards the goal. McCann scores. Grice was out of position, and McCann bounced it right off him and in. And in the final three minutes of this second period, the wheels have come off, and the Blues find themselves trailing 4-0. Kraken win the draw, and they're able to clear it out. Oh, my goodness. Empty net to Tanev. Tucks it in. It is uncanny this season. Absolutely uncanny. In some ways, not even understandable how quickly the Blues have given up goals with their goalie pull. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Alex isn't here today. Tanner's here today. Grant Francis is here today. I'm Brandon Kiley. Muscle memory. I'm glad we got that out of the way right off the top of the show. It is BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex is taking his much-deserved vacation right ahead of the holiday. So we will be with you guys each of the next couple of days. Be safe out there if you're driving right now, especially throughout the day today, and then again tomorrow. That is what it sounded like last night as the Blues lose 5-2 Five to two in Seattle. I think the real question here, Tanner, is was that a scheduled loss? And what I mean by that is we hear about this a lot in the NBA. Sometimes you got a big travel schedule. You got a back-to-back. You're on the back end of it. And you just kind of know, all right, they're probably not going to have their legs. If they don't hit their shots in the NBA, if they don't make their shots literally in the NHL, this one's not going to go the right direction. There had a little bit of that feel to last night's game. Or second option, was that a game that we learned a little bit more about the Blues in where you're going up against a legit threat in the Western Conference right now in the Seattle Kraken? Their forecheck four dominated you. Your power play was just okay. Penalty kill stepped up, but at five on five, you looked the same as you had previously where you give up three goals in one period. Where do you fall on what we learned from last night's performance? I, I took last night as being a scheduled loss. I, I, I thought they looked kind of tired from the get-go. They didn't look like the same team based on just the way they were playing. They were looser on the puck. I didn't see the same kind of energy that we had seen on the first three games of the road trip. So I took last night as being a scheduled loss. And, and you had your backup goaltender in there and, and Thomas Grice. So I, I felt like last night was one of those where it was just – 
being tired from the six game, sixth game in 10 days. Now, with that being said, I, I think we're going to have an idea of what last night truly was on Friday when they visit the Vegas Golden Knights. Because if Friday looks like it did last night against Vegas, one, they're definitely going to lose. But two, then I think it tells us that last night's game was not a scheduled loss. Last night's game was the Blues kind of reverting back to the team that we have seen previously. And that's why it's kind of tough for me to read into last night's game because typically in a normal year, I would say, yeah, you know what? That was a scheduled loss. And I could say that with 100% confidence. I don't know about this year. This year, this team has been up and down. It's been a roller coaster. Win three, lose seven, lose eight, win three. So, like, I I think it was a scheduled loss, but I think I'll have a definite answer come Friday when they play the Vegas Golden Knights. I think that game will tell us all we need to know. Yeah, I'm with you. I told Alex actually last night before the game, this feels like a throwaway game. Yeah. I, you want to look at a comparison? Just look at what the Winnipeg Jets just did against Seattle. They had the exact same back-to-back the Blues did. They beat Vancouver 5-1, to same way the Blues did. And then the next night, they lost 3-2 to to Seattle. 34-17 to were the shots against in that game in favor of Seattle. Only goals Winnipeg scored were two power play goals. They were shut out at five on five. It's pretty much the same thing. And we know what Winnipeg has been this year. Winnipeg's been outstanding. So, you know, it, you look at that and it was just a throwaway game. You can say that from the get go. Here's what Craig Berube had to say last night on what went wrong for the St. Louis Blues in that performance. We didn't uh, manage the puck very well. They 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 checked well. They're on enough time and space. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't uh, do the right things with the puck. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. You were hurt, literally. You had Jordan Cairo not playing in that game. We said yesterday, this team's going to go as far as Jordan Cairo and Robert Thomas takes them. And last night, you didn't have those two to be able to carry you. So that was a problem. The defensive turnovers in their own zone, those started to show back up. The breakaways going in the other direction, coming off of missed shots where you missed the net, those started to show back up. The one thing that kept this thing even close for a while was that your penalty kill, which had been a disaster for much of the season, once again came up with three big kills in this game. So credit where it is due, that appears to be something that might ha- might be real. Your penalty kill is now looking like one of the better groups in the NHL. And if that sustains, all right, that's going to buy you some time, even when you're losing your five on five game. And then Grice just didn't have a great game last night. Like there were a few of those moments where you need your goalie to come up with a big save and he didn't make them as much as last night looked like an absolutely disastrous outcome for the blues. You look at some of the underlying numbers like scoring chances, high danger chances. All of that was pretty close to 50 50. It felt like the blues were getting whooped, but really that was one period, which kind of was a theme earlier in the season where the blues ended up getting outscored three to nothing games, basically over at that point in time for them. That being said, I'm with you guys. That can be a throwaway game if you're able to right the ship against Vegas. I said coming in, you need three one and one at at a minimum on this road trip to really feel good about it. There's your one. You're able to get that loss. Here's what Craig Burby said last night about what the game against the Vegas Golden Knights will mean for this to be a successful trip. Great trip. We talked already. We got to regroup, get prepared for Vegas. And, you know, we need the points more than them. They do. The, the Blues need the points in a really big way. Yesterday, we talked to Jeremy Rutherford, and we asked him, what did he think he's learned from the Blues in this recent four-game winning streak? And he said, well, I understand they're playing better teams, but they're not playing against the best teams. Edmonton, Nashville, Calgary, Vancouver, they're all technically ahead of you in the standings. None of them are like legit Stanley Cup types of contenders. The Vegas Golden Knights, 
Toronto, Minnesota, New Jersey, those are teams that are legit contenders, and they're all coming up on your schedule. We're about to really learn what this team is, but if you're able to take down Vegas once again on Friday in Vegas on the road after you've had a few days off, hopefully Jordan Cairo will be back in that one, then yeah, you can come back and you can get right back on your winning ways and you start feeling good about this thing before you come back home. And it kind of goes to the conversation we had, I think it was yesterday, where the Western Conference, it's not like it's really deep. No. There's no like legitimate top team like last year where it was, yeah, okay, Colorado's there, we know Colorado's going to come out of the West. And, and with that being said, that's why, you know, if they find a way to win and they play like they did in the first three games of the road trip, it's okay to kind of start to buy in. Even if you look at that schedule and you go, Vancouver had been struggling, Calgary's been going through it, I think you can still buy in because the Western Conference is not deep and two if they continue to play like they did against in the previous three games of this road trip and they show up against vegas and play that way they're gonna they're gonna be able to take it to toronto i'm not saying they're gonna win but they'll be able to compete with them where their defense is playing well they're not loose with the puck they're in on the four check creating high danger scoring chances same with uh new jersey when they play new jersey if, if they play hockey like they did in the first three games of this road trip i think they can compete with anybody that's that feel that we said we got going off of those first three games where it's that feels like the team of old that i used to watch not this team that had uh defensive problems was loose with the puck and didn't have the five on five scoring that we were expecting so one issue they've got to get cleared up First, it was a penalty kill. This six on five, guys. We stink at it. I don't understand what's going on here. The Blues have now given up 12 empty netters this season, which is the most in the NHL. So far this year, they have pulled their goalie 18 times. They have allowed an empty net goal on 12 of those 18 poles. Scored twice. They have scored twice. That is an absolutely atrocious scoring rate when you've got the extra attacker. And even worse when it comes to giving up goals in your own net. Here's what Craig Berube said after the game on their execution or lack thereof after the game on six on five. You know, the six on five, we just got to, we got to win a battle there. We got to win them. You know, we got, we're out, we're out number them. We got to win that battle. We didn't win it. That was the game. I don't understand why they're so bad at it. You heard the call from Chris Kerber coming into the, sh- the show today. He is like beside himself. He's calling it now. Every time that they pull the goalie, he's like, I know what's coming here. I know what's about to happen because he's seen it so many times. They have played, what is it now, 33 games. And in basically half of them, they have pulled their goalie. And in 12 of those 18 opportunities, they've given up a goal in their own net while the the net is empty. It's it's baffling. It's one of the things that you can count on the most about this team. On any given night, anything could happen. But when they pull their goalie, you pretty much know what's coming up next. I, I, I'm shocked by it. I think the biggest question that a lot of Blues fans had coming off of it, I didn't think it was a problem. I thought it was the right call. You're down at that point in time. The risk of them scoring is basically nothing. And the potential for you getting back into the game, I mean, completely alters the outcome of that game. Potentially, I thought it was the right time to do it. They just didn't execute. Tanner, did you think it was the right time to pull the goalie by Craig Berube? I, I thought it was too early. I mean, with four and a half minutes to go, I, I just thought that was too early because they had been generating some momentum at five on five to where I was like, okay, let's see if they can score something here, five on five even strength before needing to pull the goalie for another two minutes. And I know two minutes ago, well, that, that's not a big difference. To me, it was because 
knowing that they are as bad as they have been this season, six on five with the em- empty but net. You're pulled. down by two goals. So you're going to have to I, I score it, but two of them I, I get <laughs> to it. even get back into it. I, I understand it. I just thought it was too early. I thought they were building enough momentum five on five, and knowing how bad they are on the six on five advantage with the empty net pulled, the moment they showed the camera and went, okay, the Blues have pulled the goalie, I went, well, this thing's over. Crap. And, and, it's an and like, offensive I zone face off, though. You, they're one of the worst face off teams in the league. You've got your best face off man in the on, on the dot. Like, you had every opportunity to get it done. You you lost it. Like I, I thought it was the absolute correct decision. Not only did I not have an issue with it, I think that to get aggressive there and give yourself an opportunity to for the last four minutes of the game, then play at five on five. I thought it was the right call. What'd you make of it, Grant? Well, and Joey said it last night too on post game too. You know, you had one goal in the game, five on five. So. It's not like you were generating a ton of scoring chances five on five and you're down by two. So, you know, you may as well, you you were generating a lot of chances on the power play. So you get that man advantage out there. You're trying to get something going with, you know, being down two goals. And I thought it was the right decision to pull him that early. And, you know, if it's, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It doesn't matter if it's with two minutes left or with four minutes left. The only difference is if you can do it with four minutes left, you know, you give yourself more time to get that other goal to tie the game. So I, I think it was the right decision. I think the blues will continue to do it as they are. Are, um, it's just a matter of, like Craig Bruby says, you have to win the battles. And, and the Blues got the puck off of that faceoff. And, and then, then they lost the battle. Tory Krug was unable to, you know, go. He, he gloved the puck down and in the process had it poked away. And, and to his defense, too, like if you're Seattle, you know, you're up by two. You can be a little bit more aggressive in that situation, which they had two guys on him as soon as that happened. So, you know, maybe it's a different situation if Seattle's only up by one and they're a little bit more hesitant to to go all out there. But in that situation, Tory Krug was put in a tough spot. And the it just voice worked you, that way. That voice you just heard was Grant Francis. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll be with you guys until two o'clock. Coming up in about 30 minutes or so, we'll get into questions and answers. Six, five, seven, eight is the Air Comfort Service text line to get your questions in. But coming up next, Major League Baseball. I woke up this morning. Carlos Correa is a Met now? What? I thought he was going to be a giant. We'll discuss the news from overnight and what it means for the National League coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Yeah, I wouldn't say we're, we're completely done, uh, but we'll be opportunistic on the things that we're, we're able to do. Hopefully there'll be a couple a couple things that get announced in the, in the near future. You know, I think a lot of the moves are going to be on the margins um, right now and kind of rounding out um, some of the, the, the main acquisitions that we've made this far. I don't know. Maybe Billy Appler operates a little differently than I do. When I think about on the margins, I don't think $315 million for arguably one of the 10 best players in your sport alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis on Brandon Kylie. Not bad. That was Billy Epler, the president of baseball operations for the New York Mets this time yesterday when he was asked, Hey, are the Mets done making moves? And then overnight in what has been probably the most shocking thing of the off season and an off season that had a whole hell of a lot of surprises, Carlos Correa ends up, I guess, failing his physical with the San Francisco giants and the New York Mets come in and say, hey, we'll give you a 12-year deal worth $315 million. How do you feel about that, Correa? He decided, yeah, I'll go ahead and come play with my friend Francisco Lindor. I'll play third base. He'll play shortstop. So now this offseason, the Mets have signed Correa to a deal worth $315 million. Brandon Nimmo for $160 million. Edwin Diaz for $102 million. Justin Verlander for 87. Kodai Senga for 75. Jose Quintana for 26. Omar Narvaez for 15. Adovino for 14. David Robertson for $10 million. 
All of that ends up equaling out to $806 million in cash that they have guaranteed to those players this offseason. When you look at where their payroll stands now, they are at $502 million. When you take into account their taxes and everything, this is a $500 million payroll that the Mets have put together. The New York Mets are the new New York Yankees. What the Yankees were in the late 90s, early 2000s, that's what the Mets have become. Looks this up earlier today, Tanner. The Yankees in 2004, this is when they added Alex Rodriguez to the mix, and you've got Jeter and A-Rod on one side of the infield, and everyone was like, oh my God, this is going to end baseball. How is anybody going to compete with this? They were at $184 million in payroll. Now, times have changed a bit in the last 20 years. Third highest payroll that year? The L.A. Angels at $100 million. That was about 55% of what the Yankees were spending on their payroll. This year, the Mets are at $500 million. Third highest payroll in baseball right now, the San Diego Padres at $251 million, which is exactly 50% of the Mets. The Yankees were to baseball in 2004 what the Mets are to baseball now. This doesn't mean that baseball's ending for everybody else. The Yankees didn't completely dominate the sport over the next six seasons. They ended up going to the playoffs six of the next seven years. They went to the ALCS three times, and they won the World Series once. It was their only appearance in the World Series with both Jeter and A-Rod as stalwarts in that lineup. This does not guarantee that the Mets are going to be excellent. It does not guarantee that they're going to get out of the National League in the playoffs to represent the NL in the World Series. It does, however, raise the cost of competing in the National League. And that is where things get very interesting. Tanner, what was your reaction when you saw last night Correa was going to be signing with the Mets, not the Giants? I I was really stunned because even though there was the reports of the failed physical, I still had some sort of... Uh, mindset that the the deal was still going to get figured out. Maybe they were going to take a year off, two years off. They're going to have to go back to the negotiation table, or there was just something where it was oh, it was just a misread of medical reports, and they, everything was going to be fine. I I was stunned to see the Mets get involved back in this sweepstake, and not only just get involved, but wrap this thing up within about a twenty four hour period in which the physical issues kind of uh, showed itself. So, but to your point, I you know we've seen teams like this before not spend this kind of money, but we've seen big te- big spenders in the off season fail in years past. I remember the Toronto Blue Jays when they had the big offseason of adding Jose Reyes and I think R.A. Dickey, Mark Burley to big contracts. Didn't work. Same with the Miami Marlins when they did it, uh, when they first opened up their ballpark. So spending money like this doesn't guarantee winning. Although I will say this, I think that they are in a better position because I agree with you. They're taking that formula of the New York Yankees back from 2004. Load up with um, uh, two of the best infielders in all of baseball. The thing that's different from them from what the Yankees were and it's why it took them a couple years to really hit that Win, that winning window was their pitching right now is better than what the Yankees were. You go back to that 04 Great. season, and they had guys that were sitting in there. They had all like mid four ERA guys in the rotation. So like they, the Mets are built better than what the New York Yankees were from that 04 year. So I think that their winning ways will start up sooner, but. I, I don't think it guarantees them anything. I mean, they are in the toughest division in baseball, in my opinion. I mean, you look at the Braves. I know they're not spending that kind of money, but they have a very they have their core set in a loaded lineup and still a really good rotation. And you look at the Philadelphia Phillies. We've talked about it. they've got two great aces as well in Nola and Wheeler. Their lineup's loaded. We were talking about this in the office with five legit bats in the lineup once Bryce Harper becomes healthy. So, it doesn't guarantee any winning, but it does raise the price 
for those four teams in the National League. Now, I'm not saying the Cardinals need to go spend and get past that luxury tax threshold, but I think it is kind of the conversation that we had a couple weeks back where I, I don't think the Cardinals can continue to kind of incrementally just increase payroll. At some point, they're probably going to have to hit a little bit of that hill and see a nice spike in the payroll to try and compete with these teams. But with that being said, I think they're in a good position to compete with the Mets, the Braves, the Phillies, these teams that are spending all the big bucks. Uh, I, I think that they have a lineup that can keep them within any, within any game because they are as deep as we've talked about, 11 guys with WRC plus of over 110 going into the season. And I think the rotation is somewhat deep for the Cardinals where I think they can compete with a team like the Mets. They just won't have as high a payroll. Yeah, let's stick with the Mets for a minute just to talk about them and what, what it means for them. Somebody on the text line asked, 65780 is your comfort service text line from the 618. Guys, so the physical that the Giants gave is more strict than the Mets or what's going on with that? So the way that this works is you could fail, quote unquote, a physical for something that another team would pass you for. Like they may find something in a shoulder, right? Every team views shoulders a little differently. If a pitcher came to the Cardinals and had a shoulder issue, the Cardinals might have already known about that. And so they're not going to fail him for an injury that they knew about that they don't believe is going to be a long term problem. Meanwhile, the Giants may have failed him for that same impingement in his shoulder because they think, hey, three years from now, uh, we just signed this guy to a five-year deal three years from now. We think that the shoulder is going to give out. There's no reason for us to go through with this, and all of these deals are pending a physical. That's why like, you'll see a deal that is agreed upon, quote-unquote, and it's pending a physical. And that's why they do that, to make sure everything is in place the way that they think it is. Apparently something wasn't in place the way that the Giants thought with Carlos Correa. The Mets are saying, we're fine with it. We don't care. And they do still have a physical that will take place, but that's why this was able to go through the way that it did. As for where the Mets stand right now relative to the rest of the National League, I think as of today, they're obviously the favorite. I think they're the best team in the National League. But that doesn't guarantee you anything. They could still end up like we just saw this year. I thought the Mets for the majority of the season were the best team in the NL. And they didn't end up doing anything in the postseason. They got there, and because the playoffs are somewhat random, they got beat. And next year, would it surprise anybody, or should it surprise anybody, if the Braves or the Phillies or the Cardinals or the Padres or the Dodgers, any of them upset the Mets in the playoffs? No. It happened to the Yankees in the 2000s. It can and probably will happen to the Mets in the 2020s. Just because you have this outlandish payroll does not guarantee that you're going to win in the playoffs. Now, that being said, it does give you a better chance. Like people that say that payroll doesn't matter, just not true. Payroll absolutely matters because the better players typically cost you more money. But there are ways around it. And that's where you get to the Cardinals and locally, how do you compete with something like that? That's the question that Mo needs to be asking right now. Can they continue to compete with the payroll at where it is right now, which is roughly $180 million? Can you compete in the National League against a team that's spending $500 million when you're spending less than $200 million? I think you can. It's just really hard to do so. And this upcoming offseason, since they decided to sit out the starting pitcher market this year, that's something they're going to have to really consider next year. When you've got a bunch of dudes that are hitting the market that are going to get paid 20 plus million dollars as starters, that's when it starts to get interesting for me. I don't think that their model, quote unquote, was tested this year. It will be tested this upcoming season. I, I agree with that because I think next year is the year that you're going to have to go out there and get be uncomfortable with the starting pitching market. We've talked about it. Max Scherzer can opt out of his deal with the Mets. He's a guy that should be on the target list for the St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah, it's going to cost you potentially $50 million a year, but you always need a top-end guy like that. And, and I think the reason it's easier for the Cardinals to kind of 
go in and be willing to spend big bucks on starting pitching like that. I think it comes down to the fact of the matter that they really don't have, if everything goes the way that they're kind of expecting this year, they don't really have to spend kind of that, I don't know the way the phrase is, they don't have to spend on those uh, surrounding pieces in their lineup because they've got the depth that is on cost control deals like Brendan Donovan, Juan Yepes. They don't have to do like deals like uh, you're seeing being handed out to guys like uh, Trey Mancini, who's a free agent. He'll be signed as a complimentary piece to any lineup. The Cardinals don't have to do that. They They have those guys internally that are cost controlled so they can focus on the three big bats in their lineup, Goldie, Arnato, and Contreras, for making up around this uh, $80 million in payroll. And with their pitching, they they really need a starter to hit that they've drafted, whether it be Graceffo, McGreevy, or Jerpy. One of those guys really needs to hit, so they have someone that's a at minimum, a solid number two or three that's cost control. That way they can spend some more money into the starting pitching. Because that's where I think that's where this model works for the Cardinals is it comes around, you don't have to spend money on complimentary pieces it comes to okay we can develop a complimentary piece which the cardinals have shown that they are capable whether that be in a lineup or as a solid number three four starter can then if you can do that then you can spend your your uh resource money wise on the stars and i think that's where the cardinals model is going to we're going to see it they're they're going to be willing to spend on superstars can they develop those guys behind like a Max Scherzer in a rotation. And I think that's where the question comes for the St. Louis Cardinals beyond this year. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax sign. We'll get to questions and answers coming up in about 15 minutes or so. If you guys have any questions, Cardinals or otherwise, we'll get to those coming up at 1145. But coming up next, some NFL quick hitters, including some buzz coming out of Boston that this might be the final season for Bill Belichick in a Patriots jersey. We'll talk about that next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. All right, it's time for some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. So there is some real buzz coming both out of Boston and also some national analysts that we might be watching the end of the Bill Belichick era in Boston. Reason why I bring this up, Tanner, I thought it was a bunch of like hot take artists in Boston that were saying this at first. WEEI had a segment on this yesterday up in Boston, and they have Bill Simmons, who's as connected as they come when it comes to the Boston sports scene. He had a podcast yesterday that I listened to with um, an ESPN.com writer who has written a lot of the pieces about the ownership, right? And he's tied in with the ownership group up in New England. And both of them seemed to believe that there is a real chance after the season that if Bob Kraft decides, Bill, I need you to change some things on your coaching staff, that Bill would say no. And Bill would say, you can either fire me or we can go our separate ways or I can continue doing this the way that I have been for the last 20 years and it's produced some pretty good results for Bob Kraft. Do you guys think there's a real chance that Bill Belichick is done after this season? And do you think there should be a chance that Bill Belichick is done? I... I'm going to say no on both. I, I, I don't think you move on from Bill Belichick, and I don't think Bill Belichick is leaving New England. Now, I did see there was a possibility. I think it was Dan Graziano wrote today in ESPN, like maybe that he takes a higher-up role, like in a front office role. I can't see Bill Belichick if he's doing not, that. If he's in Boston or if he's in New England, it will be as their head coach. Yeah, and, and I, or he'll I can't be somewhere see else, it. I think. And, and I think... I think ownership has the right idea to say, hey, we need to see some changes on the staff because, I mean, let's just say it. Matt Patricia is terrible and as an offensive coordinator, and we all saw that coming. Mm-hmm. So if he's not willing to move on from those guys, I think there will be a little bit of that 
push and pull. I think ultimately Bill Belichick will remain as the head coach. But if then there's another bad season like we've seen, and they haven't been bad this year. Offensively, they've been atrocious, but they're 500. They've got a chance at the playoffs. I think next year is the year that could become the breaking point. I, I think this year it, it ends up working itself out. Bill Belichick returns. But if offensively they don't get things figured out with Mac Jones, defensively they take a step back, they miss the playoffs next year. Next year's the year I've got circled as, okay, I could see this becoming the breakup for New England. I was going to say the same thing. I think next year's the puke point for the Patriots and Bill Belichick. Like, And I think a lot of it depends on the development of Mac Jones, too, because last year, you know, they, they made the playoffs. They were looking okay. You wanted to see them take a step forward this season, and instead it seems like they've taken a step backwards. I think you see some change-ups with the assistants and the coordinators, um, but I think next year is the point where if things don't change, then it's real for Bill Belichick to be potentially moving on from New England. I didn't buy this until I listened to the podcast yesterday. And then I was like, you know what? It kind of does make some sense. Like, Are the Patriots going to compete for anything meaningful in the next couple of seasons? No, Nobody no. believes it, right? Even if they make the changes to their offensive coordinator or whatever, and that's really the only one that matters. Like everything else is fine. Their defense has been pretty good this season. Um, they, they just they need a guy that can come in and take over the offense. Even if they did that, the ceiling for this team is incredibly limited with their quarterback play right now. They're pretty much capped out. They did that spending spree a couple of years ago, brought in a bunch of wide receivers and tight ends. And guess what? They need wide receivers and tight ends right now. There's not really an easy route for them to go that direction. I think they both might say for the best of the Patriots, for the best of Bill Belichick, maybe this is the time for us to go our separate ways. The question is, what does he do then? Because I I don't think he's done coaching. I think he wants to continue coaching. And if he does, I don't know where he goes. I don't know what the obvious landing spot is for a guy like Belichick. I I think if they agree to part ways or he ends up getting fired, I, I think we'll see a team fire their coach that we weren't expecting and hire Bill is Belichick. Is there one that makes sense in your mind? I Well, okay. Wherever I should Tom say Brady that we're not, ex- not expecting. You know what? I've got one for you. Are you thinking who I'm thinking? The Chargers? Yep, that's who I was going to say. And that's why I was going to say it's not so much a surprise because we've heard, I think, the piece today that if they miss the playoffs, Staley's probably on the hot seat. I mean, if they make it and they get bounced first round, honestly, I mean, if they don't get to the Super Bowl, I could see them saying, you know what, we can go get a veteran head coach. Thanks for what you've done, Brandon Staley. You are helpful, but Bill Belichick just takes us to the next yeah, I mean, level. Bill Belichick, I think if you're Brandon Staley, you would even say, yeah, I get it. All right, okay, cool. All right I'm going to go take his job in New England. Yeah, I mean, he, he's he got to get another job elsewhere. He's young. He'll have an opportunity. Somebody on the text line brings up a point that I do think is really important. Bill Belichick is 31 wins behind Don Shula right now for the most career victories in NFL history. I do think that is something that matters to him. He is a guy that reveres NFL history, and for him to be at the top of the wins list is super meaningful, obviously. Being said, 31 wins is a lot, especially when you don't have Tom Brady as your quarterback anymore, and getting to 10 is a chore. So if he ended up going to L.A., you've got Justin Herbert. You've got some talent on the defensive side of the ball. You could win 10-plus games a year over the next few seasons. All right, now you're only having to coach for the next three years. If you're in New England, you might have to coach for five more years to be able to get there, depending on how things go. So I I don't think it's a crazy thing to suggest, even though when you hear it, like, hey, Patriots, Belichick potentially parting ways, it sounds absurd on the surface. All right, next thing as we go through some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN. Sounds like Matt Stafford going to come back next year, Tanner. There was an announcement yesterday. Stafford said he is not going to be retiring. He's going to be back, and the likelihood is that'll be with the Rams. Looking back on that deal, knowing now what we do, 
Would you have still done it? Was it all worth it in your mind for the L.A. Rams? I think so, because I, I he was the driving force of them getting to the Super Bowl. And I know he played okay in the game against the 49ers, but he made some big plays when needed. He he led that drive in the end of that Super Bowl to give them the lead against the Cincinnati Bengals. I, I still think it was worth it. Now, there have been some lows with Matthew Stafford, not just with the injuries, but watching him turn the ball over all the freaking time. But I, I, I think it was worth it. I, I If you asked me to go back and do that trade, I would have done it because I don't think they win the Super Bowl last year with Jared Goff. I, I just don't. And look, Goff's been good with Detroit this year, but he's kind of a system quarterback. But but I don't think he had the chance to take the system to the next level. And I think at times last year, Stafford did that. And I think he especially did that in the Super Bowl game. So I would say, yes, I, I would do it again. And I, I think based on everything that I've read and podcasts I listen to on the Rams, it sounds like they're going to run it back next year. It sounds like they're confident McVay's going to stay. Now they're in cap hell. I don't know what they're doing in free agency, but it sounds like they're just wrapping up this year too. injuries to the line. The whole offense has been hurt. Cubs been out a couple weeks. Stafford's been out a couple weeks. They're going to run it back, so I, I definitely would do the trade again. I mean, you got to think that the Rams knew they were selling their soul for a Super Bowl there, so if they would do it again, if they would do it then, they would do it again, right? So, If they didn't win the Super Bowl, then sure, I get the questioning of this. I can't believe there were real sports fans that are actually sitting around right now saying, ah, they messed up, shouldn't have made the deal, they locked themselves into Capel. Yeah, and you would do it a hundred times over if it meant winning a Super Bowl. That's what all of this is about. I'm a Chiefs fan. For the first 27 years of my life, I had no idea what it was like to watch a team that could actually compete for a Super Bowl. No idea. For the vast majority of you, whoever it is that you're a fan of, unless you're like a Patriots fan, basically. The idea of winning consistently and getting potentially to a Super Bowl year after year is something that is is so foreign to you as a sports fan that, like, of course you would sell your soul for one. Just for one. And that's what the Rams did. And, like, do I love them for it? Am I... Do people here still hate that? Like, of course. Yeah, we can set all of that aside for a second. This is just a sports discussion of what they did. It is 100% worth it, and you would do it every single time, especially in a market like that, where it's obvious that nobody cares about them. So, yeah, if you suck for the next three years, who cares? People were coming to your games either way. You got the Super Bowl out of the way. I think it was absolutely worth it, and I'm shocked by the number of people that are currently saying that they wouldn't have done it. Agreed. That banner is going to fly forever. That first-round pick that Detroit has, that if had the Rams had it, he might be with the organization for 10 years. The banner's going to outlast him. All right, final thing as we go through some NFL quick hitters. There is a Thursday night football game taking place tomorrow between the Jaguars and the Jets. Let's go Jets! It has some serious NFL playoff ramifications for this one. The Jets are expected to start Zach Wilson That's in this game. It does not sound like Mike White is going to be available. That being said... The over-under on this is 36, which is one of the lowest that we have seen so far this year in the NFL. I think the lowest, actually. And it is a pick'em. The Jaguars at the Jets is a pick'em, despite the fact that Wilson is starting for the Jets and the Jaguars have been playing really inspired football lately. Tanner, who do you like in this game? I, I like the Jaguars in this game. Now, I'm getting ready to look. What's the weather going to be like in that? Because I mean, I, bad. It's going to be gonna bad say, everywhere th- this week. Yeah, that's the thing is like, if it's snowing a lot and the wind is crazy like they're calling for, then I could see where this becomes a more difficult task for the Jaguars because I think on paper, like if they were in Jacksonville, 
I think they'd be favored by six. Here's a weather alert, according to the Fantasy Football Weather Guys. Oh, okay. Let's get Matchup will feature extreme weather event okay. with heavy rains, 20 mile per hour sustained winds, gusts ranging from 30 to 40 miles per hour. Mm. I can see why this is a low uh, over under, but I, I still like the Jaguars. It looks I, like it's supposed to be like 50 degrees, though. Oh, that's nice. A lot better than here. Um, I, I still like the Jaguars. I think this game will be close. I would take the under as well just because I, I think that it is going to be more low scoring because the wind's going to take away a little bit of the passing game. But I just think Jacksonville's playing, to me, the roster uh, the roster's better, I think, by a slight edge. And just Lawrence is playing at an unbelievable level right now. That offense is really good. The Jets, they're limited with Zach Wilson. They, they, can't, they can't do, which is a weird thing to say, they can't do what they can when they have Mike White running that offense. Mike White takes the offense to the next level. Zach Wilson brings him down a step. So I think it's close. I think it's a 17-10, 17-14 win for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And then I'll be buying you and Alex a six-pack. There we go. I'm going to be honest. Like I don't know what the situation is right now with him in New York, but I would put some serious consideration in starting Joe Flacco this week. I'm honest with that. Like I I have no... I think that's a reasonable opinion. ...stock in Zach Wilson right now. They're not going to win with him, so why not at least give yourself a chance and and see what Joe Flacco can do for you? Yeah, I mean, both of them are terrible. The the options are not good for the Jets, but at least with Flacco... (laughs) Flacco might play a little inspired, or at least try to. He's shown you the ability to complete passes on a consistent basis, and Zach Wilson hasn't done that so far this year. I would take the Jaguars in this as well. If the... If the weather is as bad as they're projecting it to be right now, that does change things to me because the Jets have a very good run defense. And if they have a, if they have a strength offensively, it would probably be their running game with Zonovan Knight. I would I would lean maybe a little bit more towards the Jets because the Jags, so much of their success recently has been based on Trevor Lawrence and his ability to throw through the air. And if it's going to be that bad weather wise, it it's kind of saps some of that ability. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, will the Bills do... Take two. Will the Blues do with Ryan O'Reilly what they did with Jaden Schwartz a few years ago? We'll talk about that coming up at the top of the hour. Questions and answers. 65780 is the air cover service X line coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for questions and answers. If you guys have any questions, be sure to get them in now on the air comfort service text line. Start with this from the 314. Hey guys, what do you think about Mizzou's recruiting class as it is officially National Signing Day? So I'll go ahead and take this one, Tanner, if you don't mind. Good. Okay. Missouri right now, according to Rivals.com, has the 30th best recruiting class in the country. That is quite good. It is not quite as good as the last two years under Eli Drinkwitz. That's okay. As long as you're consistently in the top 30 to 35, you're doing fine as a recruiter at the University of Missouri. The next big test for them, like the, the recruiting class is what it is. They brought in a quarterback, Jabari Johnson. He's from Washington. He is considered to be a, a really, really good quarterback. He's a four-star player. 
Uh, I heard somebody yesterday compare him skill set wise, not the same player, but skill set wise to Russell Wilson when he was at NC State. He he could be a, a very good starter in the SEC. Got a couple of good uh, defensive and offensive linemen as well. They recruited the state okay, but not as good as they have in the past this year. The transfer portal is really what matters for them for the immediate future. And this is the case at a lot of different schools. As much as there is focus on National Signing Day, these classes are getting smaller for teams because they are taking more and more Power 5 transfers. So Mizzou brought in a Power 5 transfer from Oklahoma that's going to start for them next year at wide receiver. They're taking in a junior college transfer that could start for them next year at linebacker. They're hoping to get at least one, maybe two offensive linemen that can start for them next year. That is where you get the immediate impact guys, and then the high school guys are hopefully going to start for them two to three years down the road. It's a good, not great class, and that's kind of where they stand right now. Uh, 65780 is your cover service text line. Tanner, if you were offered a broadcasting job to be the play-by-play man for either the Nationals or the Oakland Athletics, which would you prefer to take right now? Oh, my God. Uh, I would... This might surprise you. I would probably take the Oakland A's job. And the reason for that, and this is probably just the optimist in me that wants to live longer, um, they're getting ready to move to Las Vegas. And when they move to Las Vegas, and that's not official, but we we all know it's going to happen here before too long. When they move to Las Vegas, I wonder if they become a team that will spend more uh, because it's a bigger market, bringing more revenue. And, and if you're gonna if you're gonna draw fans into Las Vegas, the moment you move the team there, you've got to be good right away. So I, I think they're a team that will become a team that spends more than what they do in Oakland. Washington, I think they're going to stick with their same model, which isn't going to be spending a lot, always letting their superstars walk, as we've seen. Uh, so I, I think I would say Oakland. I think it'd be exciting to go cover a team, and when they move to Las Vegas, it would be fun. I would rather live in D.C. than I would rather than Oakland, so I would go with D.C. You don't got to live in Oakland for like five years, ten years. It's fair. I would rather live in D.C. than Las Vegas, oh, so I would rather go out to D.C. <laughs> 65780 is the air comfort service text line for questions and answers. Uh, from the 618, guys, do you think that Nolan Arenado is happy with what the Cardinals have done so far this offseason, or do you think that he regrets his decision to opt in? I actually was texted this by a buddy last night as well about the Arenado opt-out decision. I, I, I think Arenado... If he knew what this offseason was going to look like contract-wise, would he have made the same decision? I think the answer is yes. And I think part of that stems from this. It sure seems to me like Arenado wanted to play for one of two teams, the Cardinals or the Dodgers. And based on what we've seen the Dodgers do, or really maybe more specifically what they have not done this offseason, I don't think they were going to be an option for Nolan Arenado. And so if his options were a team that decided not to do anything this offseason to be able to reset their payroll or the Cardinals, I don't think the Cardinals were giving him a $300 million deal like he potentially could have got elsewhere. So is the grass really greener on that other place? Like the Giants probably would have been the spot for him at this point. Yeah. Did he want to play in San Francisco? I don't know. Maybe, but I don't think that he regrets his decision. I think he's happy with where he's at. I think he's happy playing for a team that's going to consistently compete. And I think he's happy that they decided to go out and get a guy like Wilson Contreras, who he probably sees as a winning player. So I don't think that he regrets the decision, even though I know that for Cardinals fans, they may view it a little differently. Yeah, I, I don't think he regrets it either. Now, I do think the Dodgers probably would have shown interest in Nolan Arnato because I think if he would have opted out, he would have basically told teams, hey, I'm either returning to St. Louis on a better contract or I'm going back to 
LA where I'm from. And I think the Dodgers would have had interest because they could lock up their corners with Arnado and Freeman and probably still have money to go get someone like Otani next offseason. I, but I don't think he regrets it because I think the Cardinals laid out the same thing that we've been talking about all offseason to him. Hey, we're going to go find a guy that can protect you and Goldie in our offense. We're going to find him, and it's probably going to come at catcher. Okay, they got Wilson Contreras, so they got rid of that. And then the other thing I think that he was told was, yeah, we're probably going to look for a left-handed bat, we're probably going to look for a bullpen arm. And he said, okay, well, I know we can probably win the NL Central with that. And honestly, if we have Wilson Contreras in our lineup, or insert Sean Murphy, if that's who they sure. also told him about, I think he viewed them as, hey, we've got a shot. We can get it in the playoffs and we can do something with that. So I, I don't think he's I, I don't think he's disappointed his decision at all. Somebody else says, don't forget that his buddy Matt Holiday is going to be the bench coach That's as well. That's true, too. 100%. I, I just think you don't mess with happy. And he's happy here. So he's going to be paid. This is the other thing, and I know it sounds kind of weird to say. He's going to be paid like $250 million for his career. What's the difference between $250 million and $350 million? Is there really anything like tangible that will change in your life by having that extra $100 million? I know it sounds crazy to say because, yeah, would you take the $350 million over $250 million in a vacuum? Sure. Is his life going to really change tangibly? Probably no. Not. He's set for life either way. His kids are set for life either way. He's, he's going to be A-OK. So uh, I understand it's a ton of money to potentially give up, but... I think he's happy, and that's really what matters. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll get into a game of more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios. We will tell you which one is more likely. That's coming up at 1215. But next, are the Blues going to do with Ryan O'Reilly what they previously did with Jaden Schwartz? We'll talk about that next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's the cap going to be? And, you know, Ryan O'Reilly, he goes into a situation where, yeah, he'd probably want to stay here and he'd probably take a little less, but how much is too less? So uh, I think that it makes sense what Pierre reported at The Athletic is let's get back together in January. You see how O'Reilly's playing. You get a better idea what the cap's going to look like and, and perhaps what the Blues can do in terms of uh, get, managing the cap. That was Jeremy Rutherford about two months ago now talking about what the plan would be for Ryan O'Reilly. And guys, last night we saw a former Blue on the ice against the Blues once again, and that was Jaden Schwartz. Now, the Blues had a decision a few years ago on what to do with Jaden Schwartz, and I think that one was a little bit easier. There was a, a family thing there, and... Uh, Jaden Schwartz, his time here had just come to an end. It was very clear. The the injuries had started to rack up, and the Blues knew they could find somebody to produce similar results at a potentially cheaper cost. So what they do, they decide, you know what, Brandon Saad is going to be our option to be basically the Jaden Schwartz replacement. And I think that's gone pretty well so far for the Blues. Schwartz was beloved inside of that dressing room. Last night on the broadcast, if you watched it on Bally Sports Midwest, uh, they showed uh, the wedding where Jaden Schwartz was with basically the entire 2019 St. Louis Blues team. And all of those guys still are best of friends with Jaden Schwartz. Part of the Ryan O'Reilly decision is going to be, man, can you really lose that guy in this dressing room? It's a tough thing to do. But as you project forward here, he's getting into his mid-30s, and you're going to have to potentially give him a four-plus-year contract for a guy that already is not the quickest skater in the world. Tanner, I think the decision for the Blues is going to be this. We can either bring back Ryan O'Reilly, we can bring back Ivan Barbashev, or we can sign somebody 
from the outside. I don't know who that player would be. Maybe trade for a player from the outside, like a Buchnevich type of situation, and bring in that guy to be our second or third line centerman. I think those are the three potential paths for the Blues. In recent years, Doug Armstrong has chosen one of those two paths that maybe fans would not choose. He decided to do that instead of bringing back Petro. He decided to do that instead of bringing back Pat Maroon. He decided to do that instead of bringing back David Perron and Jaden Schwartz. He's done this a bunch of times. Is he going to do it again with Ryan O'Reilly in your mind? I, I think he will. I, I think he. I think he's choosing that option three word as you find someone from the outside and bring them in as a free agent or or via trade, as you said, during uh, kind of like the Buchnevich route. I, I, this just doesn't – I feel like if Ryan O'Reilly was going to be here next year, I feel like he would have already gotten a contract extension. Like I think the Blues would have made sure to take care of that. Or they maybe do it in uh, early January. Maybe they have the conversations then to bring him back. But I, I think the Blues have – decided that Robert Thomas is the center number one centerman of the future. We've got Bradenshin that can play center for us as well. He can become our second line center, and then we can kind of fill out from there. I, I don't think they have plans of bringing back Ryan O'Reilly, and when you look at it, I, I think that part of the experiment we talked about this early on in the season was to when Jordan Cairo was on that line with Ryan O'Reilly. What's this look like? Can Ryan O'Reilly play with Jordan Cairo? The answer was no. It just did not work out, and now you've got Josh Levo that's up there with him and Brandon Saad. So I, I think Doug Armstrong's plan right now, and again, this can change, but I think his plan right now is that they won't be bringing back uh, Ryan O'Reilly. I think they're hoping that that leadership void that you're talking about goes to Brain Chen, who has it already. I think he's one of the vocal leaders in that locker room, but also goes more towards Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo. We've talked about it. This is Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo's team. When they're clicking, the Blues are playing well. When they're not, or one of them's out of the lineup like last night, hmm. they just don't play as well. So I, I think the plan is that they will let Ryan O'Reilly walk because I don't know if it's the years or the money or both that they just don't feel comfortable with, but I don't think they want to pay an aging centerman. They've done this in the past, and I think Jer- or Jeremy Rutherford, I think Doug Armstrong's just going to be as cold-hearted as he has been in years past. I kind of agree with you, and you know the Blues have shown, obviously, in recent years that they're going more towards that quick speed game, and Ryan O'Reilly doesn't necessarily fit that perfectly, and I, I honestly think that with Barbashev coming up as an unrestricted free agent, too, I lean a little bit more towards them signing Barbashev than O'Reilly just because you're not going to have to pay him as much as O'Reilly. So, I, I mean... What if they were the same? Like, let's say O'Reilly said, you know what? I want to be in. He does what we just, we were just talking about a minute ago with Nolan Arnato, where he says, there's more money for me elsewhere. I could get five, six million bucks somewhere else, but I'll, I'll stay here for four. And Barbie's saying, I'll stay here for four. Both of them get four by four. They essentially get something similar to the Brandon Sod type of a deal. If you could keep both of them at the same cost, one's going to be 32 next year. The other is going to be 28 next year. In, in terms of Ivan Barbashev, which would you rather bring back? And which one do you think that may be the better question? Which do you think that Doug Armstrong would rather bring back at that? Well, I'll say this because I, I think the O'Reilly and Levo thing on the first line, it, it's worked out so far this year. I don't think that's a long-term Agreed. solution. So if, if O'Reilly is going to come back, it wouldn't surprise me if one of the caveats of that is you have to accept a bottom six role, maybe a third line center role. If they can pull that off and they can have a, a third line of, of something like Barbashev and O'Reilly on it, then I think you really consider that because that's that is a type of lineup. If I look look at that bottom six headed by O'Reilly and Barbashev, you take that into the playoffs with a third line that looks somewhat like that. That's really intriguing. to me. I should clarify. You get to keep one of them. Only Which one, one do them. you do at that point? Man, that's tough. I think you have to keep O'Reilly at that point. If he's going to 
be willing to accept that bottom six role where you can throw him into the third line and then you can bring somebody else in that fits that speed game that can play with a guy like Thomas or, or Kairou. I think that works out best for the Blues. I agree with that. I think I would go O'Reilly in that situation where it is you bring him in on that same – he's willing to take that team-friendly discount, but I, I think the Blues might might make the argument for Barbie because they did That's this with Perron last year where it was – I think Perron would have taken somewhat of a hometown discount to stay, and they chose Nick Letty, a defenseman. Now, it's a different conversation. Of course, Barbie's not a defenseman, and you don't need defensemen this offseason like the Blues deemed this past, but – they elected to go with defense over David Perron. They elected not to keep the guy that wanted the hometown discount and paid Nick I think some Nick of Lay. that was age. I think some of that was they Agreed. believe in the age curve, and they said, we'll go with this defenseman that's 31 years old right now as opposed to continuing to re-sign David Perron, who we think, they think, at some point is going to start breaking down and won't be the same player that he has been for the majority of his career. Now, Ryan O'Reilly is not some like 40-year-old player. I don't want to make this sound like he's going to age horribly within the next year or two. But if he ends up signing a four or five year deal, it's possible that by year three, four, maybe even five of that deal, you, you're going to regret it. Like it's it's at least in play. And Doug Armstrong tends to shy away from those deals when he signs them this late in the in the age curve. Now, he'll sign long term deals. Braden Chin, 31 years old right now. He's still got multiple years left on that contract, but he signed it when he was in his late 20s. And I think that's the difference with where you're at right now with Ryan O'Reilly. I'd love to keep O'Reilly. I think everybody would love to keep O'Reilly. The problem is to keep him, you got to make other really difficult decisions. And so I do think that this is going to influence what they decide to do at the trade deadline as well. Somebody on the text line asked, if you know right now that you're not going to re-sign O'Reilly, does it make it more likely that he's traded at the deadline? I think the answer is yes. For sure. I think the answer is yes for him. I think the answer is yes for Tarasenko, who I, I would be pretty surprised at this point if he's re-signed. And I think the answer is also yes for Ivan Barbashev. If they end up showing that last night was more of the reality and what we saw in the previous four games is the mirage, then yeah, if you know you're not going to re-sign these guys, then probably all of them are going to be traded before the deadline because you want to get assets in return for somebody that you're going to lose for nothing potentially in the offseason. Yeah, I, I think if they're not playing more consistent hockey and they're not in the playoff picture by the time we get to the trade deadline... I think everybody that, when you look at the cap-friendly sheet and has UFA next season, I think all those guys hit the trading block because Army knows, okay, if we're playing inconsistent hockey, there's no guarantee that we're going to, A, make the playoffs, and B, just not be a team that gets knocked out in the first round. And if that's the case, when you could get potentially a first-round pick for a scoring winger in Vladimir Tarasenko, or you can get a first-round pick for a centerman in Ryan O'Reilly, then it's kind of a missed opportunity. So I, I think it's very possible that those guys are traded, even if they are close to the playoff picture. They're like, let's say, four points out, but they're playing inconsistent hockey still, and it continues to be this roller coaster that we've seen. I wouldn't be shocked if Doug Armstrong decides to just pull the plug and say, That's all right, we need to get decision. assets. Yeah, we that, need we need to get assets rather than just keeping these pieces and we don't know what's going to happen. Or maybe he tries to do a quick kind of, I'm going to call it the Boston Red Sox approach where it's we're going to sell off our assets and then we'll look to bring maybe one more piece in as well. And that's not a not a prospect. Go get a player that's on the trade deadline to help us out for next season as well. I think those are all in play if they don't start playing more consistent hockey and get into the playoff picture. Yeah, I think that's the the Stasny and Shattenkirk decisions is what you're basically talking about there. The other thing that I did want to bring into this conversation, and this is this is more speculation than it is like informed by anything but the the blues have been trying out Buchnevich occasionally 
at center over the last few games. Now, it went poorly on the dot, on the faceoff dot a couple of games ago. They've basically completely eliminated any faceoff opportunities for him since. But he has been playing occasionally center. Here's what Craig Berube told the broadcasters a couple of days ago as to why Buchnevich is playing center right now. Well, I think just, you know, I wanted to kind of get him thinking again about center. He, he was drafted as a center. And, you know, I want to get, you never know when you need a center. So it's nice to have a guy that's working on faceoffs, taking some reps at center position that if you need him, you know, he's available. Um, and the other side of it is like his skill level. He's a skilled guy. For me, you know, a guy like that who, who was brought up as a center, and has the skill. It's a good position, you know. It's it's you don't you know. It's important to have good skill in the middle of the ice to make plays. O'Reilly, Shin, Thomas, Barbie, Achari, Logan Brown, all of these guys are players that can play center for you. All of them. That's six different guys that I just mentioned. So why would you need Buchnevich to play center for you? Because even if you had an injury or two. You still have enough on your roster to be able to make up for that with the the top nine, really. So why is it that Buchnevich is playing center? I, I don't think it's just because they decided on a whim one day. You know, Pavel Buchnevich in his entire NHL career has never played center. Let's try it real quick. You don't think Bruby thought of that while drinking his cup of coffee in the morning? I think they want to see what it looks like. I, I think they want to find out, is this a guy that could be a top six centerman if we needed him to? In the future, I think the answer is probably no. I think he's a guy that, like, could he occasionally play center? Sure. Is he best at center? No, I don't think so. I think he's probably going to be a winger, and he's an excellent winger at that. So I just, I found it very interesting that they decided in a game, when these games really matter for the Blues, like, ah, let's see what Pavel Buchnevich looks like in there at center. I, I don't think it's something that sticks. I do think that it is something that we can at least read into, though. I will say I do think it's interesting because if you wanted to turn Buchnevich back into a center, which is what he was drafted as, why would you not play around with that in preseason? Or, or like in the first 10 games of the, the season? the expectations in the preseason were that they were going to be competing at this point yep. and not trading Ryan O'Reilly at the deadline. Right, but long term wise if you really wanted to see what he was and you wanted to give him time to see what he was as a center you know that would be the time to do it it's a fair question I I don't know I I think that everything changed when this team started off as slowly as it did and when it did they started coming into they started asking the hard questions of what does our future look like what does our future top six look like? Who is configured in that? Who was a part of it? Who was not a part of that top six? Who is probably best situated a year, two years, three years from now on that third line? And now they're looking at it and saying, maybe Buchnevich could be a part of that top six as a centerman. Probably not. But let's go ahead and find out right now in game action where you're actually seeing him going up against legit NHL opponents, what that would look like. And I do find it very interesting that they decided to do that right now while they are still in the mix, while they are trying to work their way back into the playoff mix when these points are so incredibly valuable for them. So it'll be inter- that's something to monitor throughout the rest of the season. It's not like a red alarm blinking that is suggesting like, something is going on here. It's just something that definitely piques my attention a bit when that's something that had never happened before. And then suddenly they're saying, ah, Pavel Buchnevich, maybe a centerman. It was like when they said Colton Wong, maybe a center fielder. No, what? no, he's not a center fielder. What are we talking about here? 
something worth monitoring. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, who is going to be the Cardinals' biggest breakout candidate for 2023? The fast lane had one yesterday that really stuck in my mind. We've got a couple others that we'll discuss coming up at 1230. More likely to happen is next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. That was horrible. Isn't that how he does it? 65780 is the air comfort service text line for more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios. We'll tell you which one is more likely. Alex Ferrario off today. Tanner Hendrickson filling in for him. We've got Grant Francis in with us as well. If you give us two scenarios, we'll tell you which one is more likely. More likely to be a starting quarterback in the NFL next year. I think this one's pretty easy, personally. Russell Wilson or Zach Wilson? Um, yeah, I agree. This one's easy. It's Russell Wilson just because, like, they are stuck with Russell Wilson. If Zach Wilson was making $30 million and Russell Wilson was making a million instead of reversed, I would say that it's Zach Wilson that's more Agreed. likely to be the starter next year. But the money dictates the decisions, and Russell Wilson will 100% be the starting quarterback for the Denver Broncos next year. I don't know who his coach is going to be. I'm pretty sure it's not going to be Nathaniel Hackett, but he's no. going to be the starting quarterback in Denver. Yeah, he, he's going to be the starting quarterback in Denver. And Zach Wilson, they'll either just cut bait, trade him somewhere. Like, I don't think he's going to be on the Jets roster next year because he's easy to move. The Broncos, they're stuck. They can't cut him and they can't they can't trade him. Nobody's going to want him. So, yeah, I agree. It's Russell Wilson. 65780 is your comfort service X line. More likely to happen. The Cardinals win 80 games or 100 games next year. I think it's more likely they win 100 games. I would... I don't know how they get to 80 unless it's just a year from hell for injuries. This team has a really high floor. I I feel very good about their floor and their division helps them in that regard as well. I would be genuinely shocked if they win 80 games next year. I would not be shocked if they win 100. I think they're really good. I'd be shocked if they get to 100. But like with that being said, I I think it's more likely 100 because I agree with you. They are too good to be just an 80 win team if, if they are an 80 win team it's because it's it's a year from hell with injuries and and it, i just don't project that because I, it's impossible to project that so i would i would be saying that uh it's more likely that it's 100 wins in my opinion i, I again i don't think they can get there i think they're at best a 95 98 win team but I, I can't see them finishing with 80 yeah i would be shocked if they finish with 80 i i just and the fact that they're gonna really not a great division. Terrible. Too. You like, can say it. it's, a, if, it's an absolute if, trash division. If they were in a juggernaut of a division, I'd say 80 might be more likely than 100. But with the division that they're in, 100 more than 80 for sure. Uh, 65780 is your comfort service text line. More likely to be an MVP five years from now. Trevor Lawrence or Tua Tungavailoa? I would go Ooh. Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence looks awesome right now. He's been one of the five best quarterbacks in the NFL over the last like six weeks. I, I think I agree with you. I, I think I would say... Trevor Lawrence as well. You're now starting to see why he was a highly touted prospect. Mm-hmm. I, I think last year was just one of those where he was in just a crap situation. Urban Meyer, terrible head coach. Now he's got someone that can develop and work with him and Doug Peterson. I, I, I think I think it is Trevor Lawrence. I, I, I don't know why, but I, I feel like Tua's a system quarterback. Like Tua's kind of he's better than golf, but he reminds me kind of of golf where it's yeah, he's gotta be in the right situation with the right weapons, otherwise he's just not gonna succeed. I don't necessarily feel that way with Trevor Lawrence. Maybe that's just 
recency bias. But I, I think Lawrence, you could plug him in as long as he's got a competent head coach, not Urban Meyer, and he would be fine. Tua, I'm not so sure of that. I think Tua's like Ryan Tannehill. Pretty good. Reflection of the talent around him, though. When you've got really good talent around him, looks really good. Ryan Tannehill a couple of years ago was, for some people at least, in the MVP, MVP running. Why? Because he had a really good supporting cast that season. Good offensive line, great coaching, had A.J. Brown at wide receiver, had some tight ends that he was able to utilize well. And he ended up having a very good season as a result. I think that's what Tua is. Tua can be okay. I think in general, though, he's like a, the 12th best quarterback in the NFL. Like, if they didn't have, and, and I know it's getting into this game, but if they didn't have Tyreek Hill, like, I'm not even sure Miami's in the playoff Tua conversation. Replace with Trevor Lawrence. Replace Trevor Lawrence with Tua. Just switch their spots. Who's having a better season right now? I think it's Trevor Lawrence. I'd agree. And I think they might have one or two more wins involved in that, too. So he's just a better player. And that's OK. Like, this isn't to denigrate anything that Tua Tungavailoa has done. Tua is a, a good quarterback that you would love to have on your team. It's like the 12th best quarterback in the NFL. I think both of those things can be true. Yeah. And I think, Tua, this is about as good as it's going to get to. I think there's a lot more room for growth for Trevor Lawrence as well. So I'm with you. Yeah, I think uh, I think Trevor Lawrence is on the path. Like right now, if I said you were starting a franchise today. How many quarterbacks are you taking before you get to Trevor Lawrence? Patrick Mahomes? Josh Allen? Are, are we all on? Uh, should we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm assuming Agreed. we're all in agreement on Mahomes. Nah, he's trash. Josh Allen? Agreed. Joe Burrow? Agreed. Justin Herbert. I would take Justin Her- Herbert. Still I, have I'm him. with you I on Herbert. Well, yeah. Is there any quarterback in the NFC that right now, if you were starting a franchise, you would take over Trevor Lawrence? Given age? Given everything. I might take Jalen Hurts ahead of him. I would take I, I, Trevor I, Lawrence, I think. I think they're close. very similar. I like, say, like, I, I, that's I about the best comp you have. Um, anybody taking Dak? I don't think I would, but no. I, I was just throwing him I out there. I love Dak, and my answer is no. Heineke? Anybody? No? Okay. Just yeah, so I think sure. he's like a top five build around this player at quarterback right now. I top five to six. So he's, he's in a good spot. Jaguars are in a very good situation. They can add one more legit number one wide receiver. They're in a good spot. A bunch of people are texting in Justin Fields. I would right now take Trevor Lawrence. I think Fields, Lawrence, and Hertz are all in the same category, though, where it's like it's been a limited stretch of time. Fields is in a terrible situation, but he's overcoming it. Lawrence, we saw last year, was in a terrible situation. Now he's overcoming it. And the opposite is true for uh, Hertz, Hertz, where he's in a great situation and he's able to, I think, maximize it. So I want to see what those guys, Fields and Lawrence, are able to do next year if they get put in an even better situation. Yeah, I, I think Fields, you'll have a better read on once that situation gets better in Chicago. I think they're like a year or two years away from really loading up and becoming a decent offense. That's when you can judge him. When he gets weapons around him like Hurts, if he plays like Hurts, okay, he goes in this category. But if he doesn't play at the level of Hurts' and he's just kind of average, then you can just throw him to the side. You don't have to worry about it. Somebody said, guys, what about Lamar Jackson? I think he's right behind that group that I just mentioned. I think Lamar Jackson is right behind Fields, Lawrence, and Hurts. Is it because of injury history the last two years? Yeah, I mean, Lamar just hasn't been as good as those guys. I I think he's got the talent. The injury concerns are the reason I would push him back there as well. It yeah. just, he hasn't been healthy, and as a running quarterback, that's concerning. Yeah, Lamar Jackson is a unbelievably talented football player who, I mean, you look over the last two seasons, I understand what the wide receiver position looks like. I think some of that is because of his skill set. I think he throws over the middle of the field better than he throws to the outside. He's thrown 33 touchdowns and 20 interceptions. 
not good enough. So I, I would take those other guys right now over him. He's going to be 26 years old next year. He has taken a lot of hits. He has been injured the last couple of seasons. There are real questions there. I would pay him if I'm the Baltimore Ravens, but I would rather have those other guys that we mentioned. He's like the eighth best quarterback in the NFL when it comes to building a franchise. That's a really good spot. It's a lot of good young quarterbacks in the league right now. Coming up in 15 minutes, let's dive into the junk drawer. But next, who's going to be the Cardinals breakout candidate in 2023? I'm not even saying the devil magic player. We'll get into that during spring training when we've got some candidates that probably emerge. Maybe Connor Thomas could be that guy. Oh, yeah, he will be. The breakout candidate for 2023 could be a guy that we saw in 22 and we see even more of in 23. Who is that player for you? 65780 is the air cover service tax line. We'll give you our thoughts coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Hey, with Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. So who's going to be the Cardinals breakout candidate in 2023? MLB.com had a great piece earlier today about the surprising breakouts from this past season. And there are a bunch of examples of this, right? Jeremy Pena and some of these guys were players that we've seen moments from in the past, or maybe they were rookies that had high pedigree, but they broke out this past season. Dylan Cease, uh, Andre Jimenez, Nestor Cortez, Ryan Helsley was the guy here in St. Louis that went from being an interesting pitcher to a guy that was, I mean, one of the best relievers in all of baseball in 2022. So yesterday I was listening to the fast lane and the guys broke down who they think are going to be the breakout candidates for the Cardinals in 2023. Here's what BT had to say. Juan Yepes is a guy that you could absolutely look at and see his production, maybe not to the level of second half, Albert, but bulk numbers for the year could be right along line with those guys. So their two big picks were Juan Yepes and Nolan Gorman. I think both of those are great choices, and I gave real consideration to both for what it's worth when you look at what Albert Pujols did last year, not just in the second half, but the entirety of the season. That was a hell of a baseball player. 270 batting average and a 900 OPS. He was 50% above league average. If Juan Yepes even approaches that this upcoming season, that is a, a massive, massive win for the Cardinals. Tanner, when you think the biggest breakout candidate for the Cards in 23, who is the name that comes to mind for you? Well, there's two for me that come to mind, and, and I, I lean towards Juan Yepes because I can see his role clearly. And part of the reason for Juan Yepes is not only did you see it in spurts last year, I mean, you look at his baseball reference page, 742 OPS, 11% above league average last season. I think he can take the next step. We've seen that he doesn't really have splits. He can hit righties. He can hit lefties. You can carve out a day or carve out a role for him as the everyday DH. And if you need to, if one of the outfielders is struggling or an outfielder is hurt, he can go out there and play and quote unquote catch the ball. So I, I, I think Yepes is the guy for me. I from what I saw from him last year, I, I think he can take the step to be a guy that hits like two sixty, has twenty twenty five home run power, could hit like fifth or sixth in your lineup, and if he ends up playing really well could be viewed as like that fourth impact bat that the St. Louis Cardinals are looking for. The other guy that I thought of, and and the only reason I didn't take him because I think he is going to have a really good year and I've been high on him all off season. And the only reason I didn't take him was I'm not sure what his role is. And we talked about it yesterday. It's Nolan Gorman. I, I just can't see where he's going to not necessarily fit in, but I'm just not sure where they're playing him every day. And that's where it becomes difficult with the conversation of Nolan Gorman, because I mean, he's a guy to me that has 30, 35 home run power from the left side. And I think you're going to see a really good year from Nolan Gorman 
this year coming up. I, I think you're going to see some lows like we saw last year, but I think you're going to see some even higher of highs this year with Nolan Gorman. I, I think he's going to have 30 home run potential for the Cardinals this year. Problem is, again, I, I can't figure out where he's playing. I'm not sure he's going to be the everyday second baseman because I think they like Donovan's defense there. He's a guy that can hit one or two in a lineup before you get on base at a decent clip. I don't know if they're necessarily convinced of using him as the DH every day against right-handed pitching, and if they if, if they are, then what happens to Juan Yepes, who I think has just got an overall better bat in terms of less strike strikeout uh, in his game, and then I just don't see him in the outfield. So I, I don't know what Nolan Gorman's role is, but those are the two guys that I think really break out. Yepes, number one for me, Nolan Gorman sitting at number two. What if I told you there was a Cardinal last year who in his last 75 games of the season – Basically, after the 4th of July, hit 260 with an on-base percentage of 380 and a slugging percentage of 515. That was good for an OPS of 900, which, as we just talked about, was essentially what Albert Pujols did a year ago. By his numbers, he would have been on pace in this second half of the season, 75 games for him, for 30 doubles, 26 home runs, and 70 RBIs. That player, by the way, if you looked at his underlying numbers, was in the 90th percentile in average exit velocity. He hit the ball on average harder than 90% of Major League Baseball last year. When you look at his walk rate, only 2% of Major League Baseball players had a higher walk rate than this player. He never chased, again, 90th percentile on chasing pitches that were outside of the zone. And oh, by the way, he did all of this while playing borderline gold glove defense and having a 95th percentile arm strength. That player is Lars Nupar. That player is 25 years old. That player is going into the season, according to the front office, as the only guy that is cemented as a starting outfielder for the Cardinals in 2023. Peak Lars is coming to the city of St. Louis in the year of our Lord, 2023. Lars Newt is my breakout candidate for next year. I think last year we saw glimpses of it. I think this upcoming season, there is a real chance that by the all-star break, we are talking about Lars Newt as one of the Cardinals that is going to the all-star game this upcoming season. That's my pick for a breakout. It's interesting because, again, it, we, we come on two sides of what Lars Newpar can be. I, I think by the time we get to the all-star break, we're looking at Lars Newpar as the fourth outfielder on the St. Louis Cardinals, and Jordan Walker has come in and taken his job in right field. Like, I, I'm i not as high on Lars Newpar. I, I, I don't see the breakout year for Lars Newpar that you or the Cardinals front office sees. I understand what all the underlying numbers say. I just for a long stretch of last year and I get it there for that 75 game stretch he was really good even on the season he was 25% above league average I I just don't see I don't see Lars Newpar being the Cardinals breakout player How come? what what is what is it that is making you skeptical of him is it he didn't have the prospect pedigree is it something that you saw from him with his swing like what is it that is preventing you from really buying in on Lars Newbar I, I think part of it is is the prospect pedigree which is because you know we're, we weren't sold high on Lars Newbar when he came up and I mean granted I never even made the top 30 in the Cardinals prospect pool and the other part for me is I just seeing him at the beginning we saw him for 2021 239 average three percent above league average got on base didn't get on base at as high a clip as he did last year I I see more of 2021 Lars as being what Lars Newpar is and in 2022 I always go back to the very first stretch before he was the starter remember he he had to be demoted down to Memphis to figure things out that's my fear of Lars Newpar is that 
He's kind of a streaky player. And I and look, it was tough for him to get in a rhythm early on in the year last year because he wasn't playing a lot, and it makes a difference for some guys. Get pushed down last year as well. Yeah, and, and I didn't agree with candidate. the decide. I didn't agree with the decision to send Juan Yepes down at the time. Like his numbers were still decent at the time that he got sent down. Largest was batting below two hundred when they sent him down to go figure things out in Triple A. Like I, I haven't seen consistency enough from Lars Newpar for me to really buy in. To me, that seventy-five game stretch that you mentioned was just a really hot streak for a player that got some everyday opportunities. I don't know if he can consistently do that, and that's my either. fear. And, and that's my fears. I don't know if he can consistently do that. I think he's more of. 2021 Lars than he is 2022 Lars. That that would be my that would be my thought on Somebody it. Somebody on the text line says, guys, Newt is a very streaky player. That's what he is. That's what he's always going to be. I agree with that. And if you're if you're expecting Lars Newbar to come into the season as one of your two or three big bats that you can rely upon, then that's that's a faulty process. But I don't think they're doing that. They've got Goldie and Arenado and Contreras now that are going to be in that middle of the order. That's your pivot point in your lineup. You expect those guys to be super consistent. I'm not expecting Lars Newbar to be consistent next year, but I do think because of how good he is when he's streaky, that is going to boost his numbers by the end of the year. The other thing is he's a left-handed bat that I don't think that lefties are going to gain as much from the ban of the shift as a lot of others do. I do think there are certain guys, though, that will benefit at least a little bit by it. And based on all of the statistical data and the numbers that I've seen, Lars appears to be one of those guys that will benefit somewhat from the ban of the shift. He also has a walk rate and a lack of strikeout rate that helps continuously boost his numbers because of his batted ball profile. So he walks a lot. He doesn't strike out a lot. He hits the ball really hard. The shift is going to help him a little bit. When you put all of that criteria together, and oh, by the way, he's a left-handed bat that plays a little better in Bush Stadium. It just, it feels like the type of player that I would be willing to bet on. And so the further that we've gotten into the offseason, the more we've heard about the Cardinals, what their thoughts are on Lars compared to the rest of their outfield. I think they're betting on the right horse here and it could fail. It absolutely could end up blowing up in their face. But I think that he's the guy for me that if I was picking one player to be a breakout candidate in 2023, for me, it would be Lars Newbar. Do you think he'll have the best season of the three outfielders that are projected to be starters now between him, Carlson, and O'Neill? So it. let me answer this a different way. I, I'll, I'll say yes, but I think that it's so hard to, to say right now because like Dylan Carlson is the best bet to be average. Like if I was saying which Agreed. of those three am I the most confident in is going to be an average major league starting outfielder this upcoming year, I would go with Dylan Carlson. I'm pretty sure he's going to hit for a decent average. I think he's going to get on base a decent amount of the time, and he's going to play well defensively. So I think he's the easiest guy to say, like, the floor is the highest for Carlson. The other two guys, the floor for Newbar is what you're saying. He's a fourth outfielder, doesn't hit for average very well, and maybe the walk rate comes out a little bit this upcoming season, and that means that he's a fourth outfielder. Tyler O'Neill, it's what it was last year. Like, that's that's the floor. So the upside for both Newt and O'Neill, I think, is exponentially higher than it is for Dylan Carlson. I think Carlson's upside is a 20 home run hitter that has like a 265 batting average and a 340 on base percentage. I think Newt Barr's upside is 25 to 30 home runs with a 360 on base percentage being one of the best leadoff hitters in the National League. 
So like that that upside to me is way higher than what you could potentially get out of Carlson. And it's crazy that we're saying that because one of them was your number one prospect recently. The other guy was never rated in the top 30. So it's weird, but I think that's where we've arrived. Yeah, I I can see the argument for his upside being higher. And honestly, I would probably agree. Newbar's upside probably is higher than Carlson because I agree. I, I think the upside for Carlson is being a solid everyday player. Not great. Not not anything that you write home about, but just a really good baseball player. O'Neill's upside is, of course, the MVP caliber player that we've seen. But like, if you were to ask me to rank those three in terms of who I think has the better season, I would probably go Carlson. I would actually, yeah, I'd go Carlson one because I, I I think that he has a bounce back year, and again, it's going to end up being solid. I'd go O'Neill two because I think O'Neill can be good, but again, injury concerns are always going to pop up with him. And then again, I would go Newt three just because I see him as a fourth outfielder. And honestly, like Walker's the guy that I. I think could surpass when we do like if we were to do an end of season ranking come next year and look at, okay, how would you rank where the outfielders were in terms of their season? I think Walker has a chance to be number one on this list or number or right behind Carlson at number two. Like I I think he will surpass both Newt and O'Neill when we look at seasons from a 30 foot view by the end of 2023. Six, five, seven, eight, oh, is the air comfort service text line from the six, three, six guys. You're saying that Newt bar could be a 25 to 30 home run guy. You are out of your mind. No, I'm saying that's a ceiling. If I had to project or predict what I think that new bar will be for the Cardinals next year, I think it's 20 to 25. I think that's probably where he ends up. He had 14 last year in 100 games. I think he can absolutely, and he had 18 if you can uh, count what he did in AAA as well. Can he be a 20 to 25 home run guy? Yeah, that would be my expectation. Can he get to 30? I think he could. I think he could. Based on the way that he hits, based on the power that he has shown in the past, I think he could be that guy. I think that is the 90th percentile outcome and that should not be expected but he could reach that if he has a potential career year coming up in about 10 minutes or so do the lineups in the national league put more pressure on the cardinals hitting or their pitching we'll talk about that coming up in about 15 minutes the junk is coming up next year on 101 espn we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve it. Checking account today. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex is out today. He will be back in next week, taking the holidays off with the family. Let's dive into the junk drawer. Grant has a story for us today. Grant, what do you got for us, man? Yeah, so I was actually at the gym yesterday. We're flex. I was on a treadmill, okay? All right. And there's we these... get it, man. You work out, okay? <laughs> sure, I went home and took a nap, but okay. Important part of the story is there's these TVs. There's like eight TVs right above me. And on one of the TVs, I see this pickle that had been stabbed with a peppermint stick. There was a murder that took place. Yeah. And apparently in Chicago, it is a thing... They this place sells peppermint pickles, Ugh. where they literally just like sharpen the end of a pickle or a peppermint stick, stab it into a pickle, and sell it. That's that disgusting. is awful. I recently watched a, uh, a show on Netflix that had a very similar plot, where Santa was murdered with a um, peppermint. Uh, what you call it? A Are candy you cane. The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. Man, he no, fell no, off the roof. no, no, no. Um, it was called Murderville. It's worth your time. Um, I wanted to use this story 
as a jumping off point, guys, because I think there are some families out there. 65780 is the cover service tax line. I would love to hear from you. That eats some weird stuff around the holiday season. Now, my in-laws do something that I, I'm out on it. Could not be more out. They use something with dill pickles called frog's eyes. And what it is, is a dill pickle that is surrounded with cream cheese. And then I don't know if it's beef or ham. I can't remember which one they use, but it's like the deli meat. Oh, it don't matter. I'm out already. <laughs> and they roll it up and then you cut them into individual bite sizes. This is what it looks like, Tanner. I know that people on the radio can't hear oh, it. Okay. but I've seen these. Yeah, it's basically like stuffed pickles. Kind of kind of is yeah. the way that I would describe it. It's like an appetizer finger food thing that people eat. It's gross for, to me Ugh. it just does not do anything for me do you have anything either of you that your families do that you look at and you're like why are we doing this around the holiday season like we never make this for any other reason it's a weird food to put out there and this is something that we have on the table I, right now. i'm not sure if, how weird it is but my family makes it at only thanksgiving and christmas is the only time times we make it cheese ball where it's like a block of essentially like cream cheese they put in little bits of I, I don't know what it looks exactly like wrapped around those pickles, like a little bit of beef there. It's got some green onions in it, and it's just this white block of cheese that they put on crackers. I, I don't like cheese ball. That's disgusting to me. It's got Worcestershire, wor, wor, Worcestershire, wor, yeah. Worcestershire sauce in it, too. That, to me, is gross. Jello salad. I saw someone text in. I've seen that, too, at, at events that ugh, I can't get behind. 65780 is air comfort service Exxon. This is amazing. There are, like, seven different ways that people make these, and they're all calling me an idiot for saying that I'm not sure if it's beef or ham. Dill pickle, cream cheese, and salami, you idiot. It's hard salami, moron. It's salami, <laughs> you dumb bleep. It's prosciutto. You're an idiot. Those are awesome. Somebody else that adds, it's ham. We make those every year and they're delicious. Can't believe that you would be upset about this. I I can't do it, man. It's just not for me. I, I'm not that big in pickles, so I definitely couldn't do it. Like the only time I want to have anything with a pickle is just a cheeseburger. And that's it. Like I can't put pickles on anything else. So. Are you guys in on the deviled eggs? Oh, no. Hell no. That is a, a big time no go for me as well. Makes Somebody me said about that their family does deviled eggs with round peppermint squished on top and covered with Christmas sprinkles. That Ew. sounds absolutely atrocious to me. Um, I have, I could not be more out on that as well. A cheese ball is the best that you could do on uh, the holiday season as well. Have you guys ever had those? The cheese balls that are like soft cheese that you use as an appetizer as well. No, I, mean, I think about? that's I think that's what our family makes. I think I'm not quite sure. Cheese ball, yeah, cheese ball, and I I think it's disgusting. I, I'm out. I. That's the most interested I've been in anything we've talked about so far in this segment. <laughs> uh, Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. In 15 minutes, we're playing a game of NFL quarterback pause or pass. Should this team keep their current current quarterback in place for 2023? Or is it time to start moving on looking at their other options, both the rest of this year and beyond? We'll get into that coming up at 115. But next, the lineups in the National League, you stack them up against the Cardinals is that going to put more pressure on the Cardinals hitters or their pitchers going into next season? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
the time frame here is somewhat limited. Like I know Paul Goldschmidt had a phenomenal year last year. We all know that. Well, he's going to be 36 years old. <laughs> like time is not aging backwards here. And if he's not that guy, um, then the lineup is going to be in a little bit more trouble because it wasn't a deep lineup last year. But you had him, and you had Arenado, and you know Pujols when he was doing his thing, and it wasn't great beyond I don't know Newbar. So it's improved over last year, but I don't think it's a good enough offense where you're going to be, you know, putting up eight runs a game and overcoming the fact that you don't really have an ace. That was Mike Petriello about a week ago on with us talking about the Cardinals rotation and their hitters and saying, OK, I, I think that they've got some questions here, but I could see how it ends up working out for the Cardinals with the news yesterday. And I'm with Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis today. Alex is out that the New York Mets have signed Carlos Correa. I am curious where you guys think that puts the most pressure on for the Cardinals. Because I look around the National League right now. The Atlanta Braves, you look at the big bats in their lineup. Acuna, Riley, Olsen, Albies, Harris. You look at the New York Mets. Nimmo, Correa, Lindor, McNeil, Alonzo. Out in Philly, Turner, Schwarber, Hoskins, Real Muto, Harper. The Dodgers, Betts, Freeman, uh, Smith, and Muncie. And then in San Diego, you've got Soto, Machado, Bogarts, and eventually Fernando Tatis Jr., these teams all have at least four players that you go into the season and you can say one name and you know exactly who I'm talking about. You don't even need their full name. You know who they are based on their last name. And when you look at how that plays into what the Cardinals are going to be this upcoming year, Tanner, for you, does that put more pressure on their offense or on their pitching to be able to keep up with the Joneses in the National League? For me, it it comes to the offense. I, I think there's still more pressure for the offense because I think the pitching has shown over the last two, well, not so much two years ago, but last year, showed that it can give the Cardinals a chance when it comes to playing against these loaded offenses like the Phillies. I know I know they didn't have Trey Turner in the playoffs because they signed him this offseason, but Mike Lisson can kind of give you every opportunity to win that game. I, I think the Cardinals rotation gives them an opportunity to win every game because they've got if Flaherty's healthy, Flaherty's going to be an ace. If And then if everybody else is healthy, Montgomery, Michaelis, they sit as kind of 2A, 2B. You've got Matts as a solid number 3, 4 for you. And you've got Adam Wainwright as a really good number 5. So the pitching will give the Cardinals a chance. It comes down to can the offense hit against the top-end starting pitchers in the National League? Can this offense be able to take down a Max Scherzer, Justin Ver? It comes down to it in a uh, series. Can they hit Max Fried of the Atlanta Braves? Can they not get shut down by Aaron Nolan and Zach Wheeler like they were last year? It comes down to the offense, and for me, it becomes down to can they develop that fourth bat? And I know part of the offseason was talking about, well, they need three impact bats. You look across the National League now, most of these lineups are loaded with four guys. I mean, you look at the Phillies, they've got five legitimate stars in their lineup. You look at the Mets, they're loaded with four legitimate bats now in their lineup. Uh, so I think it comes down to can the car, it puts more pressure on not I'm not necessarily sure it's the pressure on the three big impact bats because I, I know what they're going to be. To me, it comes down to who can become that fourth guy that can be that complimentary piece for them. Can Tyler O'Neill get back to being an MVP caliber player? Uh, can Jordan Walker develop into this bat that we've been talking about all off season? Is there a chance that Lars Newbar ends up filling that void if he ends up playing really well? What about Gorman or Yepes? I think there's more pressure on the offenses because that's the unit that's been shut down when we're talking about playoff time. The Cardinals pitching has held up well when it comes to facing some of the top top end teams in the National League. I would go the other way. I would say that it is the pitching, and I'm not specifically saying the rotation for a reason. When I look at the Cardinals lineup compared to the other lineups in the National League, I don't think there's any way you can pull away based on what your offense does in 2023. 
all of these teams are going to be good offensively because all of them have really good hitters up and down that lineup, man. The way that you can potentially pull away from the rest of the pack and you can potentially win in the playoffs is with numbers. This team's probably not going to have the the top three-headed monster of the rotation that some of these other teams across the National League could. But can you be really good one through five in your rotation? Can you have seven arms that you trust in the bullpen by the time you get to the playoffs? That's possible. That's the way for me that this team can end up winning. And you add into that your ballpark that you play in, where it is a run suppression type of a ballpark. You have the defense behind them that could potentially be better than certainly the Phillies, potentially the Mets. We'll see with Atlanta. I think they're probably the team that sticks out that's the most well-rounded of the group. But the Dodgers have some question marks defensively. I don't know who's going to be playing shortstop for them on July 1st, much less April 1st. And you look at San Diego, they have nothing but defensive questions right now. So if you look at the run suppression, I think that's where the Cardinals can potentially win this year. It's not sexy. That's not an answer that I'm sure a lot of the Cardinals fans that are listening right now wants to hear, but it's the truth because the Cardinals offense, while it is very deep, and I think their lineup has a chance to be top five in the national league this year, It's hard for me to imagine a scenario where the Cardinals are winning because their offense was significantly better than Atlanta, New York, or Philly, for example. It's just hard to imagine that. I I think it comes down to me. I I can picture the Cardinals offense be the reason they're winning, and it's partly because like we we will see where the uh, pitching can shut down an opponent's lineup. We saw that with the Cardinals this past postseason where they were just shut down. I, I thought they were the better team than Philadelphia going into that playoff series, and the offense just got shut down. Now, part of that was because Goldie and Arenado just weren't hitting, but I think the offense has the chance to really separate them because I think their pitching is going to ultimately be fine. Can they just out-hit their opponent? And I, I think that's a possibility that we see from the Cardinals this year, especially if we're talking about O'Neal, and it's why the Cardinals' front office has been going with the we'll throw numbers you, at the outfield. Not just their opponent. Like, Let's put a name on it. Can you out-hit Atlanta. Can you out hit Philly? Can you out hit New York? That for me is where it gets really difficult to imagine that scenario. And obviously the games have to be played. Did I expect that the Phillies last year were going to go to the World Series out of the National League when we started the postseason? No, I picked the Cardinals to beat them. So there's weird stuff that happens in a three, five, or seven game series. But in theory, the idea of the Cardinals out hitting those three teams from the East specifically, it's just hard for me to to come up with a scenario where that happens. I, I it would it will it be difficult? Yes, but I think they can I think they can. I I think this lineup if you hit with your picks of oh we're sticking with O'Neal because he shows MVP caliber play, is an MVP caliber player when he's right. If Lars Newbar is the guy that the Cardinals front office thinks he is that we're projecting as being an all-star and you got Jordan Walker that's coming up through the system, I, I think you can. I, I think the Cardinals what you're saying of kind of run suppression and and pressure being applied on the pitching staff I, I think that the pitching staff has done a j- good enough job to has done that already, and I think they will continue to do that. I haven't seen the offense take it to the next level yet in the last handful of years, and I think that's the reason why I say there's more pressure on them because if the offense can perform in the postseason, and that's what matters. The regular season, I think, like you said, they'll be top five. I think the rotation will be fine. If the offense can get to the next level when we're talking about postseason baseball, this is a team that has a chance to go on a World Series run. If the offense kind of stagnates in the postseason and stagnates near the end like it did last year then they can't I, they're not built to win on their pitching and I, I think the offense is the reason like if we look at this team and go 
2023. Why were the Cardinals a winning baseball team? Why did they go on a run in the playoffs? I think it's because we'll be talking about the offense, not their pitching. 65780 is the air comfort service text line to get involved in the show. We're going to catch up with Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, coming up at 1.30. Uh, coming up next, though, NFL quarterback pause or pass? There's a bunch of teams right now, as you look around the league, that have real decisions to be made at their quarterback situation this offseason. How many of them are going to decide to pause? versus pass. We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're talking to Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues after last night's loss for the St. Louis Blues out in Seattle. What did we learn from that game? Or was it just more of a scheduled loss based on the back-to-back, no Jordan Cairo in that one? Tough game all around, tough situation for the Blues. Talk to Kerbs about that coming up in about 10 minutes or so. But right now, let's play a game of NFL quarterback pause or pass. Which of these teams should pause with their current quarterback or pass up their current option to go get somebody new? So so if you're pausing, you're going to stick with your guy. If you're passing, you're going to pass on this guy. You're going to get somebody new. Just to explain the rules, I know Alex isn't here, so you guys probably understand yeah, it. I got it the first time around. Just to make sure that we're all on the same page here. There are a lot of teams that are going into a, li- a big-time quarterback decision this offseason. Let's start with one that is going to be a headliner, and that's the Baltimore Ravens. Lamar Jackson is on his fifth year option right now. The Baltimore Ravens have the decision going into the offseason of franchise tagging him or re-signing him long term. Tanner, are you doing that? Are you pausing with Lamar, keeping it as it is? Or are you passing on Lamar, potentially trading him somewhere else and starting a new in Baltimore? I'm pausing. I I think what's going to happen is I think they're going to franchise him. And that's what I would do, too, because he's seeking a fully guaranteed contract extension. And as the last two seasons have shown, he can't stay healthy. And I wouldn't give it to him, but he's too good to let go. When, when you have the right surrounding cast and build it into that Baltimore Ravens offense around Lamar Jackson, we've seen it. The team can be really good and have a shot to go and win the AFC. This year, I don't think they had the, the right roster around Lamar necessarily. And Lamar's just been dealing with injuries, but he's too good to pass up, in my opinion. I, I think you pause. I think you keep him. You go through the franchise route for the next two seasons, and then you try to work out a contract extension after that. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, and I, I think for the Ravens, too, like if they were going to trade him, if if they wanted to trade him, they wouldn't get back for him right now what they would want just based off the season that they ha- he's had this season. So, yeah, I think I'd pause on this one, too. I'm pausing as well. I'm keeping Lamar in the mix. I would probably franchise tag him. If he's willing to accept something other than a fully guaranteed deal, I would re-sign him long-term if I could. If I could get him on a reasonable contract, I would say Deshaun Watson is an outlier. That is a situation that has no impact whatsoever on your situation or any other quarterback in the NFL because of how rare it was. And I can't believe he's the guy that got it, but whatever, neither here nor there. Lamar Jackson should be a Raven next year. That's the guy you build around. You get a new offensive coordinator. You get some new talent at wide receiver. You build around Lamar. Detroit's a really interesting one because Jared Goff has played very well for them this season. I think Jared Goff is this generation's, like for the 2020s, I should say, Alex Smith, where he is a reflection of whatever is around him. 
He's not going to elevate those around him. But if he's got really good talent, as he did early on with the Rams, he's going to be able to play well, well enough that the Rams were able to get to the Super Bowl with him. Or this year in Detroit, they've got a good system. They've got good wide receivers. They've got an excellent offensive line. And guess what? He looks good as a result. He's $31 million, though, next year to keep. They can cut him for just $10 million in dead money. So you save $20 million against the cap. And oh, by the way, they're going to probably have a top five pick with the Rams selection that they got in that trade that brought them Jared Goff. Guys, are you pausing, sticking with Jared Goff or passing him somewhere else and going out there and getting a new quarterback if you're the Detroit Lions? I think you pause if you're Detroit. And that's things to say as a guy that watched Jared Goff in L.A., I, I think you pause because I think you draft a quarterback to develop behind him. And I understand the kind of the appeal of cutting him and saving and getting saving that $10 million. But I, I think it's too risky. I, I think Detroit's a really good team. They can continue to get better with a good offseason. I think you stick with golf. You draft someone behind him, have that guy develop, whoever that ends up being. And then in another year or two, then maybe you turn the reins to him. But I, I think you pause. I, I think you keep Jared Goff because of what you're saying. He's a guy that can lead a winning team he can be the alex smith for you get you to the playoffs and then eventually you can turn the reins over to your next franchise quarterback detroit is currently fifth in the nfl in points per game at 26.4 they're tied with the bengals that's wild and they're right behind buffalo i'm a big believer of if it's not broke don't fix it and i think that's what the lions need to do here what they do need to fix is their defense and that's what they need to focus on in the offseason man this is going to be such a tough spot for them Like, I'm not the biggest C.J. Stroud guy, but let's say the Rams end up with a top four pick and C.J. Stroud's on the table. I think you pause with Jared Goff. I think you keep him for this upcoming season, no matter what, because having a guy sit behind Jared Goff for a year is not the worst situation. That's a team that could compete in the NFC North again next year with Goff behind center. But do you make a decision that could potentially give you a better future? Because what if C.J. Stroud ends up being really good? What if he's a guy that just needs some more time and he's got this high upside like many of the quarterbacks that we've seen in recent years, like uh, Justin Fields or some of the other guys that have Trey Lance, who we thought was going to be really good coming into this season if he's in a good situation. That's where it gets interesting to me. But just to answer the question directly, I would pause it with Jared Goff and then I'd see how the draft plays out. And if there's an opportunity there to potentially upgrade, I would take it and then move on from Goff after this upcoming season. Let's stick with another one that's kind of in a similar vein. Seattle Seahawks. Are you pausing and keeping Geno Smith on a potential long-term contract extension? He's a free agent after this year. Or are you passing him, letting him go somewhere else, and then maybe taking a quarterback with that top three pick that you currently have slated to get from the Denver Broncos? You traded last year Russell Wilson, and now that pick that you got in return from Denver, as of today, would be the third overall pick in the NFL draft. I hear what Grant was saying on the last one of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Something appears to be broken in Seattle because they've been struggling ever since the hot start to Geno Smith. They're now on the outside looking in. Is that on Geno, though? I think part of it is. I I think last handful of games, look, his numbers uh, two weeks ago, 367 yards at the Rams. It's the freaking Rams. They're terrible this year. Raiders did the same thing. They're not a good defensive team. To me, he's kind of cooled off from where he started at the beginning of the year. If this was week four, I probably would be saying pause. I I think I'm at the point where it's time to pass. I I think you move on from him and you look for someone in the draft and then you just turn the reins over to him. I I don't think Geno Smith can be what Jared Goff is, where Goff can do it multiple years, where if he's in a good system, would you consider franchising him? No. 
I, I wouldn't. To me, it's too pricey to pay Geno Smith that. So I think it's time to pass if I'm Seattle. I would be worried if I'm Seattle, considering this is a contract year for Geno, if this is the best we're going to see from him and it's yep. going to be a fall off from here. So I think I would be ready to pass, too, if I were Seattle. Man, I just wonder what he's going to get. There are so many teams that need a quarterback. And so if you were going to try to re-sign him, I do think that it would be coming at a pretty significant cost. But who's going to pay 30? I mean, there's always a team, right? This famous last words. Houston. Who's going to pay $30 million for Geno Smith? He's 32 years old. He's going to be 33 next year. You're not getting a guy that's in the prime of his career. Maybe he's got another good probably three seasons for you. And maybe he can replicate what he did this year where he gives you like 30 touchdowns, 10 picks per year. That's a really good season by your quarterback. I would try to re-sign him at a reasonable rate. I would see if he'd be willing to take from the Seahawks what the Saints did with Winston. Winston. If he's willing to do that, where I'm going year to year with him, like, hey, let's let's double down on this. Let's see if we can get this. And if it works next year, we'll give you that long-term deal you're seeking. But we want to see it for another year. That would be what I would try to do. And I think Winston's like that $18, $20 million range is where he was last year. That's what I would try to do with him. Next one up is the Las Vegas Raiders. Derek Carr is $35 million to keep. He's $5 million to cut or trade. You pausing with Derek Carr, keeping him around for another year, or are you passing him somewhere else to one of those quarterback needy teams, Tanner? I think I'm passing him to a quarterback needy team. Now, will the Raiders do that? I'm not so convinced because they're sticking with Josh McDaniels. They've already said that, so I think they're going to try running it back and figure, hey, we can't blow that many 13-point leads again next year. But I, I would pass. I, I would look to trade go- Goff, Derek Carr to one of these needy quarterback teams and then kind of go into a rebuild if I were the Las Vegas Raiders. It wasn't working before you brought in Josh McDaniels. You even added a weapon, two real weapons. You added a pass rusher this offseason and you brought in the great wide receiver in Devontae Adams and it's still not working. So I would pass. I would look to sell Derek Carr and not cut him. I would look to trade him. Man, I don't know here because I don't I really don't think Derek Carr is the big issue here because he's shown success in the past. Like last year, he had a pretty good season. I think I would stay here or pause here. I I think the issues are more widespread with that team. I I think you can stick with Derek Carr and still get good results out of him if you build around him. I would pause. I think Derek Carr is a good player. I I think this is becoming a situation where we, we look at it and we say to ourselves, man, Derek Carr must be the problem there. Like, why isn't he winning? And it kind of reminds me it's different. Like the NBA is different than the NFL, but there was a time where in New Orleans, we we're like, man, is Anthony Davis as good as we thought he was? Because he never seems to win down in New Orleans. And everybody seems to think that he's a top five to 10 player in the NBA. And then he went to LA and it's like, oh yeah, he's, he's really excellent. And he just had really terrible talent around him. I'm not saying that the Raiders are terrible around Derek Carr. I heard Carr's the next Anthony Davis. Who's their number two wide receiver for most of this season? Because Hunter Renfro's been out. They've been without their top tight end Waller's for most of out. the year. Their number two wide receiver has been a dude that walks around the streets of New York City without any shoes on. So it, I, I have a really hard time saying that Derek Carr is the problem there. I think he's part of the answer. I would keep him next year. I would pause and keep Derek Carr around. All right, last one here. New England Patriots. Mac Jones going into year three. About four million bucks to keep him as your starting quarterback. Tanner, are you pausing with Mac Jones? Or are you passing on him, potentially trading him elsewhere and deciding, you know what, 
Let's start anew. Let's try to get somebody else in here. This year, by the way, Mac Jones, for those that haven't been paying attention, has thrown seven touchdowns and eight interceptions. I'm going to pause. One, he's just $4 million, so he's not that... He's not that uh, it, money's not an issue for you there. Nope. I, I I pause because I think it's more of the situation, and this feels weird to say that Belichick put him in. I, when you when you name Matt Patricia your offensive coordinator, a guy that failed in Detroit and was a terrible head coach, and had been a defensive coordinator up until this year, yeah, it was going to be a mess. So I, I think his situation is based on the play calling that he's with and the system that they're trying to run under Matt Patricia. I think you bring in an offensive coordinator. I'm not saying Mac Jones ends up becoming a superstar, but I think you see him have a better year, more closer to what he was last year. So I'm pausing here. I still think there's more to Mac Jones' game. Yeah, I'd pause here too because kind of similar as the Raiders, Like I think that the problems are elsewhere. And with Mac Jones, I mean – the Patriots really aren't in win now mode. So you have the luxury of being able to be patient with him and see what he can do. I'd give him one more year. I think I would pass. I think I'm out on Mac Jones. You said last year, you thought he was going to be the first quarterback in that NFL draft to win a Super Bowl. Still got a chance. This guy is not winning a Super Bowl. He, he cannot be the starting quarterback for a team that's that winning a Super Bowl. Justin Fields. Nah. Justin Fields could lead a team to the Super nah. Bowl. This guy can't. Get out of here. Mac Jones, I'm passing. I'm moving on. I I would go to my next quarterback and try to figure out who that's going to be. Their problem is, I have no idea who that guy's going to be. Maybe it's Tom Brady. Coming up in 15 (laughs) minutes, maybe. In 15 minutes, we're hitting the BK and Ferrario Rewind. Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, joins us next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Today, Tanner Hendrickson alongside. I'm Brandon Kylie. Grant Francis in with us as well. And right now we're going out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by the voice of the blues. He's Chris Kerber here on 101 ESPN. Curbs, we appreciate the time as always, my man. How you doing today? Brandon, doing good. How are you? Uh, doing well. So scheduling-wise, I'm just curious, Curbs, are you guys in Vegas now? Or are you spending the next few days there? Are you still up in Seattle? How's this work for you? Uh, the, the team flew, we flew right out of the Seattle after the game to Vegas. Uh, Joe Vitale and I got on a plane this morning from Vegas, flew home to St. Louis. We're doing that, uh, game remotely from hot shots on Friday. And, um, so it's a little bit scattered this week. I forgot about that. That is on me. They told me right before this, uh, Riz and Donnie, it is officially announced going to be joining Chris Kerber on that game from hot shots on Friday. So looking forward to hearing that curbs. Let's start there. What are you looking forward to about that? That's going to be a cool night for you out of hot shots calling that game. Well, you know what Donnie and Jamie do such a great job with the last minute blues podcast. Uh, it's, it's an important thing for us and uh, we want to make sure that we help promote it, do it right. Uh, obviously, the Riz Show has an amazing following, and, and everybody on that show, we know their listeners are great Blues fans. And when this opportunity presented itself, rather than spend a few extra days on the road to do one game remotely this year, which you know we were do had done so many in the previous two, uh, and and then to be able to do it at Hot Shots and, and really make it an event, it, it was kind of a no brainer to have those two be involved. So I'm looking, I'm I'm looking forward to whatever they feel like talking about after watching a play and. 
Um, it'll be a little bit different. It'll be a little unique. Joey, Joey is actually going to be doing the pregame and the intermission uh, and the postgame for Bally. He's getting an opportunity to fill in on that, which I think is a great opportunity for him and, uh, you know, expand his reach a little bit. And so we're going to have some fun at Hot Shots on Friday night doing the game uh, with those other two guys. It's, it's going to be a blast. Somebody on the text line from the 314 said, which Hot Shot location, guys? It's going to be the one in Fenton. So if you want to go Fenton. hang out with yep. them, they'll be out there in Fenton. Uh, it should be a great time. That'll be Blues versus the Vegas Golden Knights Friday night. Puck drop for that one starting at 9 o'clock. So check them out over at the Hot Shots in Fitting. All right, Curbs, let's react to the game that we saw last night. I think there's a million different ways that you can go with this. My reaction earlier today was basically that felt like a scheduled loss. They have those in the NBA where it's like, hey, based on the off days, based on back-to-back scheduling, travel, all that stuff, it felt to me you've got Grice in net, you don't have Jordan Cairo out there, the legs you could tell were just not there for a lot of the guys. It felt like a scheduled loss, and I'll give them one gimme on this road trip. They've earned that based on the way that they played in their first three what was your reaction to the loss last night? Yeah, you know what? I, I thought they came out a little bit flat. That's really not much of a surprise, uh, as you said. I think, you know, the fact that you had played, you know, the the, the three games in the previous five days, uh, you're on that road trip. Listen, sweeping those Western Canadian team guys, it's only happened like four times in franchise history. Like, it's a that's not an easy thing to do in and of that. And, and then so, then you go the back-to-back, but there was quite a flight delay coming out of Vancouver. I mean, the team didn't get to the hotel until two thirty in the morning, you know. And and you know, some people go, "Well, whoop de doo, what is that?" Well, I'm just telling you, it, it it messes it messes with a lot. And uh, and you know, there was it was. You're right. It's it's just one of those where kind of schedule wise, maybe you pull it off. But the Kraken were playing well. The Kraken were rested. They didn't play the night before. They didn't travel. And that's one that if you're talking to the Seattle people, they're like, no, we should get this game. But I'll, to, to the schedule thing, I'll tell you this. For a long time, I still believe this is the case. Uh, there, there were general managers and some people around the game that really thought, and they figured that from a scheduling standpoint, that the Vancouver Canucks had on average anywhere from five to eight wins a year that were a direct result of the schedule that the teams they were playing were playing. Because you were always coming in from Edmonton or from Calgary to play in Vancouver on a back-to-back. And and it was it, it, that kind of thing is real. I think Seattle's starting to figure that out as well because teams are having to come in and you think, oh, it's close by. It's, it's you know, it's it's Vancouver. It's Seattle. But by the time you, the, the airport's about 40 minutes from the arena in Vancouver and then you clear customs if there's no other delays, it can tack on some travel hours to you. So it's a, uh, at one point in time, I'm not going to be surprised as, to hear that uh, a team took a bus across the border rather than flew. Curbs, I uh, wanted to ask you about the penalty kill. Last night, the penalty kill has been trending in the right direction since they've made some personnel changes on it. Again, three for three on the PK last night. Do you think that the penalty kill is fixed for the St. Louis Blues? No, uh, I think it's trending in the right direction. Uh, fixed, you got to like what you're seeing, but no, there's there's some ways to go yet. Um, and, and I think, you know, you, you'll see if maybe even with some more challenging power plays coming up, uh, tomorrow might be a spectacular example of that. You know, they gave up the two goals to the Edmonton Oilers. Craig Berube didn't mind what happened in that game. The special teams has been really good. And Tanner, it, you know, it's, it's not coincidence that this turned a corner, you know, after they had those two full days of practices where they were able to practice both days with Mike Van Ryan managing us and, really wanting to get some better details in where the sticks go and 
and the lanes, and they changed some of the personnel, you know, putting, you know, Saad and, and Barbashev together. It, it's really trended in a positive, good direction. Um, but I, I want to see it against some, uh, some, some better teams a little bit more before we think that it's fixed. Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, is our guest here on 101 ESPN. Kerbs, I want to listen to one of your calls from last night because I think it, it you had the exact emotional response that I did in this moment. I bet you can guess exactly what it is. Here was Chris Kerber last night on the call. Kraken win the draw, and they're able to clear it out. Oh, my goodness. Empty net to Tanev. Tucks it in. It is uncanny this season. Absolutely uncanny. And in some ways, not even understandable. That's what it sounded like as the Blues once again allowed an empty net goal. Curbs, we went through some of the numbers earlier today on what they're doing there. It's it's crazy right now. They've given up 12 empty netters this season, which is the most in the NHL. They've pulled the goalie 18 times. And again, 12 times they have allowed the empty net goal. They've only scored on two of those opportunities. What's going on with this six-on-five opportunities for the Blues? Well, I, th- I think first off, one, you're expecting, you're, you're hoping that you don't give up an empty net goal, but you're expecting that you're going to. To me, it's not the fact that they've given up the empty net goal. And, and I, I got to really put maybe a little deeper dive into this. It's been how quickly after the goalie has been pulled. That was nine seconds later. And that, to me, has been the, 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 the question here. Phil Roberto, I said this in the broadcast, Phil Roberto's always always said years ago to me when he, when he was the head coach of the team I was broadcasting for, he, he goes, you've got like, it, it just burned him when, when they didn't get numbers on the puck, you know, whether Pavlovich Navich could have been in a different spot, you know, you didn't get enough guys in the faceoff circle, you know, the guy goes down on his knee and he's still able to clear the puck up to the blue line after a hard battle by Robert Thomas, but he needed help from wingers in there. I just, there are some things, whether it's practicing, what, uh, now, look, you're going to have some people, our good buddy Jim Woodcock, he texts me all the time on this. He hates the fact that we pull the goalie and pull the goalie so soon. And, and the numbers Tanner hated it last night, Curbs. Oh, he was I'm so mad. Curbs. He was so mad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but now, and I don't go too deep into this analytical world with there, but I've talked to some people that deal with the analytics, and they actually say things will tell you you should pull your goalie a bit, little bit sooner. So th- there's – there Especially when you're real... down by two, Curbs. That's the other thing. Like, they were down by two well, last night, so you need the time. Well, you're down by two, but here's the other thing. we at, at that point in time, the Blues really weren't generating much five-on-five. Five. If you were generating some opportunities and putting some pressure on, maybe trying to get a power, maybe looking like you could draw, even draw a power play, that, that's one thing. They weren't doing it. So, I, I, again, I don't have a problem with the way – I don't have a problem with the timing of it. I don't have a problem that they tried it. To me, there just has to be more desperate hockey to win that puck off that faceoff. And then there's got to be much smarter, less desperate, more brain play with the puck once you get it. And, And that, to me, is the biggest difference. It's Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues. Again, you'll hear him on the call Friday night live from Hot Shots in Fenton, along with Donnie and Riz. Going to be looking forward to that broadcast. Love pregame coverage with Alex starting at 8 o'clock. Puck drop coming up right here on your home of the Blues, 101 ESPN at 9. Curbs, enjoy the holidays with your family, man. It's really cool that you guys are going to be able to be in town for that. We'll talk with you again, I think, next week, as long as you're available. 
All right. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan, guys. You got it. That's Chris Kerber, voice of the blues here on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, we're in the BK and Ferrario Rewind with a Paul DeYoung take that might be a little bit more positive than what you're expecting. Yeah, it can't be. We'll do it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. and Grant Francis. I'm Brandon Kylie. Huge thanks to all of you for staying tuned with us today throughout this holiday season. Alex Ferrario out spending the holidays with his family. He will be back in next we'll, next week. We will be back with you tomorrow. We're going to be off on the 23rd and the 26th. So enjoy the holidays with you and yours. For the rewind today, guys, we talked a lot about the big signing in the National League yesterday. And, of course, that was Carlos Correa, who is now going to the New York Mets. No, not the San Francisco Giants. There was another signing that was made as well. Brandon Drury, not signed in the National League, but previously of the National League, now going over to the AL, signed with the Angels on what I think is a totally reasonable two-year, $17 million contract. I actually thought he was going to get more than this. Drury was a pretty good player in the first three years of his major league career. From age 23 to 25, he was about 5% below league average offensively, but was fine. Well, was an okay offensive player. Then he was terrible for the next four seasons. He was 35% below league average. And then last year, age 29, boom, he skyrockets once again, 20% above league average, gets a two-year guaranteed deal as a result. Can Paul DeYoung be for the Cardinals what the Angels think that Brandon Drury is going to be for them? The reason why I ask this is because their careers, the arc, is eerily similar. Paul DeYoung, first three major league seasons, just slightly above league average. Paul DeYoung, the next three major league seasons, 25% below league average. He's stunk offensively the last three years. Now, John Mosellock just said recently that he's going to change his approach at the plate. He is actually changing things with the way with his swing. He's down in Jupiter right now. He's trying to get things back on track. I thought he did that last year. Now in an age 29 season, the exact same age that last year Brandon Drury was in when he turned things around. Tanner, do you think that DeYoung this year can be, for the Cardinals, what Drury was last year? No. Okay. I, I, I don't. I, I think I think it's over for Paul DeYoung, and I think he needs a change of scenery. I... I'm not sure he can. I'm not sure he's going to have success again in a Cardinals uniform. Could he do that elsewhere? Maybe. Maybe it takes going to a very hitter-friendly ballpark like Brandon Jury did in Cincinnati to kind of revive his career. Then maybe there's no pressure there. Then then maybe Paul DeYoung can turn it around. But I I don't think he can do it here in St. Louis. I I, I just can't see it. And, and like right now, I I think the conversation that the Cardinals are having is more on you know is Paul DeYoung worth on our on our roster is he worth the roster spot because right now the only thing that you're guaranteed out of Paul DeYoung is good defense and I don't know if you necessarily just need that from a guy on your roster I I don't see the upside in Paul DeYoung anymore I'm just not sure he can get back to being that guy because we've heard it for two straight off seasons now that he's going to work on his swing last year was supposed to be that big kind of return to form year and in fact he got worse so no, I, I can't see Paul DeYoung having a brain injury kind of revival this year. I think the tough thing for me is I just don't even know what a good Paul DeYoung season looks like at this point. Like, first of all, can he play other positions other than shortstop? Would he be comfortable there? Because that's part of what made Brandon Drury valuable last season is he can kind of play all across the infield. Like he can, 
you need him to play first base on any day, play 28 games there. Second, play 26 there. Third, played 62 games there. He even got a couple of games at shortstop last season as well. DH'd a decent amount. That's a guy that can be a super valuable piece. In fact, he even played a game in the outfield last season. Paul Dion's not going to be playing in your outfield, but can he spell a day of, you know, Paul Goldschmidt at first base? Maybe. Maybe that's something you could get out of him. Could he play third base for a day where he's giving you decent defense over there next to Tommy Evan? Possibly. He needs to be a guy that can be a bit of a super utility infielder for you this upcoming year where you can you can trust him defensively at any of those positions. Offensively, what does it look like if he's quote-unquote good? I think it's purely about the power. I think he needs to understand at this point that he's he's a 240 hitter, maybe even below that. And that's okay. You you can still be a contributing member of this offense by just hitting for a ton of power and not worrying so much about the average on base percentage. It's not going to make him a fan favorite or anything, but play across the diamond, be a utility infielder, hit 15 to 20 home runs given the opportunities that you're going to get, which is going to be at a minimal this year. I think that's the way that he has a quote-unquote successful season in 2023 for the Cardinals. I, I would say successful year for Paul DeYoung would be that kind of utility guy that you're talking about. Hit like 210, have a slugging percentage around like 390, and have like 20 home runs. Like that. that is like what I think Paul DeYoung's successful season looks like. And to your point, yeah, it's nothing that's sexy. Nobody's really going to get super excited about it. But if you can provide some of that bottom-of-the-order bottom of pop, he's going to be hitting 7, 8, 9, somewhere in that range. You provide 20 home run pop potential out of that one of those slots in your lineup and strike out a decent amount, but you got that power and it, it would make it worth it. But again, I'm just I, Jose Rondon, for example. We thought he was a successful utility infielder when he was here, right? Yeah. 2021 finished that season. He hit 260, which is just a higher batting average well, than we're going to see from DeYoung this year, but had a 730 OPS. I think DeYoung, I think DeYoung could maybe get there. I think it's in play that DeYoung finishes this year with a, an OPS around that. That's what you need. You need somebody that can be for you this year what Jose Rondon was for you in 2021. Nobody's going to be excited about it, but that makes him at least a useful major leaguer, which is more than what we could say about him over the last couple of seasons. We should just bring Rodon back. That's what I'm thinking. Rondon? Yeah, what did I say? They had their chance at Rodon. They decided not to go that direction. Jose's got suspended for PEDs anyway. For Tanner Hendrickson and Grant Francis, I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fastlane with all the guys coming up next here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.